From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, early results from third party shows Amazon's latest Prime Day not much better than any other day. Amazon saying not so fast. Our conversation with the Prime executive is coming up. Plus, Grayscale claps back at the SEC after rejecting a Bitcoin ETF. I'll speak with CEO Michael Sonnenschein about their legal challenge and ongoing friction between Gary Gensler and the crypto community. Plus, Andrew Yang joins us to talk about the state of tech entrepreneurship in a downturn, plus his outlook for president in 2024. All of that in a moment, but first let's get a look at the markets. We were so, so close yet so, so far. The NASDAQ 100 falling in the last five minutes of trading to carry on a horrid streak of losses. Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow has the movers and Ed just last minute couldn't close the door. Yeah, they say it's the hope that kills you, right? Look, we're down three tenths of a percent on S&P 500, just flat down less than a tenth of a percent on the Nasdaq 100, and that took it to six straight days of losses, its worst streak since February of 2021. We're bracing for a CPI print on Thursday or inflation data for the month of September, and that will give us an indication of how much further the Fed will go with raising rates and how much more pain this market can take. Really interesting. Continuing to see selling in semiconductor stocks as well, which have really suffered amid tensions between the US and China, but also concern about slowdown for the end use cases for those semiconductors. Yields did pull back a little bit this Wednesday. Intel's been a really interesting story of the last 24 hours. A Bloomberg scoop, you see the pain it suffered over the last six sessions. It rose slightly on Wednesday. According to sources, Intel will lay off thousands of people. Uh, as soon as this month, we could get an announcement in areas like sales and marketing, where according to our sources, they'll reduce headcount by around 20%. No official comment from the company, but they have earnings on October 27th. That's something we're pay paying close attention to. So despite the headlines, the S&P 500 falling to its lowest level since November 2020, there wasn't a lot of big movement when it came to tech. Netflix up 3%, the kind of big outperform with no news behind it. But when you look at the mega caps, they were kind of muted declines, really. Nothing really pulling in either direction. And Twitter continues to basically trade sideways as we wait and see, will this deal with Elon Musk close before October 28th? In the meantime, we're at around $0.50 cents, uh, dollars a share. 
All right, uh, Ed, that is the big question. Will the deal be sealed before that date? Thank you. Meantime, this week's Bloomberg Business Week cover story focuses on the roller coaster ride that has been the Musk Twitter deal. Kurt Wagner writes that for Twitter, there are no good outcomes, no matter what path a deal with Elon takes. Musk has publicly trashed Twitter's top management and alienated thousands of its employees, vowed to slash rules that were put in place after misinformation threatened election integrity and wants to make Twitter the everything app, but hasn't really explained what that means. Here to discuss, Bloomberg's Kurt Wagner. So the headline, Kurt, is that Twitter faces only bad outcomes if this deal yeah. closes. Why do you say so? Yeah, well, remember, Emily, there's there's two options here. One, uh, you know, the deal falls apart and this stock that has been sort of artificially inflated is going to crash. Um, employees who have spent the last six to nine months, you know, just in this total state of uncertainty are going to have to pick up and pretend like, you know, nothing ever happened. Or if, if things go the way Twitter wants, then they get the guy in charge who, you know, for the last three months has been saying that Twitter's been lying about its user base and it's, and, uh, you know, doesn't have the right business model and all these things, right? So it's just sort of like, it feels to me that there's not really a lot of good outcomes here. Now, I got a lot of fan mail after this story came today, uh, Emily, for people who disagreed that they think, you know, the free speech uh, kind of uh, vision on Musk keeps talking about is going to make Twitter a much better place very shortly. But, you know, even that, uh, I would probably argue, is going to create a lot of other headaches for, for this platform very soon. Well, and look, Musk does have millions and millions of fans, so that's certainly not... Yep you know, uh, out of the question that, you know, some folks are, are going to be very happy if this deal right. gets done. That said, you use the words very shortly there. And I'm curious, say, say the deal does get done before October 28th. Could Elon Musk make significant changes to the platform before the midterm elections, before November 8th? I mean, the deal is supposed to close by the 28th, right? And so to me, that means that Elon Musk would be in charge and therefore he could start making decisions. Are they going to be able to, you know, bring President Trump back onto Twitter within the next week? Like, possibly it is possible, but it, how much of an impact is that going to have? I don't really know, right? But I do think that there could be changes to some of these policies. They could say, hey, all the folks who have been looking for misinformation or hate speech or voter misinformation, stand down. Don't don't bother. Don't do your job. And all of a sudden, you know, we could have a, a very different level of content on the platform very soon. What's the latest on negotiations between the two parties? What are they actually talking about right now? Yeah, I mean, there has been some stuff that we have reported at Bloomberg that, you know, despite the fact that both sides want the same deal price, there have been some hangups, right? Specifically that, you know, it sounds like Elon Musk wants to reserve his right to possibly sue some of these executives once the deal closes to go after, you know, maybe people uh, kind of personally um, as a way to say, hey, you've been misleading investors and misleading me, the potential buyer this whole time, right? Twitter, of course, doesn't want to to have that in there. They're also worried about this debt contingency that Elon had to add to, um, you know, the, the negotiations. And so 
I imagine at this point, both sides are trying to iron through those types of details, right? I mean, they claim they want the same price. I think uh, the debt is, is for the most part locked up. And so you think like, okay, they're really at the end here where they're kind of uh, going over those, those very minute elements of a deal. All right, Kurt Wagner, thanks for keeping us updated as always. And check out that story in the latest edition of Bloomberg Business Week. All right, coming up, just how big was this latest Prime Day or not? We're going to hear from the head of Amazon Prime next. This is Bloomberg. Amazon Prime flash sale may not be all it's chalked up to be. Third-party researchers are saying the Prime Day sale is generating the same traffic as any regular day. Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow asked Jamil Ghani, Amazon's head of Prime, about the data. Here's how he responded. I don't know if that's uh, the accurate read. We've been really impressed with how many Prime members are showing up, how they're engaging with the event, and uh, how they're shopping. They're shopping the entire store. Some of the favorite categories so far are electronics, toys, home, apparel, health and personal care, top brands like Apple, Laneige, HP, uh, Shark, and many, many others, uh, including uh, items off our uh, curated uh, top 100 list. So we've been really, really happy with the event so far. Uh, our members can engage through uh, midnight tonight, so I encourage them to check it out. What is Amazon tracking to do for this October window in dollar terms relative to July? Can you give us some granularity about the impacts of having a second window in the same calendar year? Yeah, we have to keep in mind that Prime Day this year was the largest Prime Day we've ever had, $1.7 billion in savings for our members around the globe. And so what we're trying to do with this event is give our Prime members yet another opportunity to save. We know that uh, our members are always looking for savings, but no more so than now, where you know the macroeconomic environment um, has everybody trying to make the dollar stretch a little bit further. And so this is an opportunity for 40 hours for our members to get an exclusive jump on their holiday shopping. It's needs and wants across the entire store. And so far, the engagement's been really strong. So uh, it's too early to tell, uh, but I expect that there'll be uh, deals throughout the event. That's something that we learned in Prime Day, that our members like top brands and they like having deals throughout the entire event. You're going to continue to see that through midnight tonight. So this window will not be as big as the July window. It's too early to tell, but we're very excited by the early engagement. Um, and it is the kickoff to uh, the entire holiday season. We're going to have deals and discounts throughout the entire period. Uh, Black Friday, Cyber Monday are, continue to be incredibly important, but we wanted to take care of our most engaged or most important customers first. Those are our prime members, and so this is the kickoff to the season. That is interesting, right? The idea around the pull forward in holiday spending. Can you talk to me about how that might help clear out some inventories ahead of the holiday season? 
Yeah, you know, this event is not about inventory. This We built this event purpose-built on the top brands that our members we know are looking for as they go into the shopping season. And so this is an exclusive 48 hours for our Prime members to get a jump on their holiday shopping, ensure that they get those must-have giftable items, uh, get some of the holiday rush out of the way earlier in the season. But we're going to continue the deals and discounts for all of our customers customers, including Prime members, going into Black Friday and Cyber Monday. You alluded to it earlier, but what are you learning about the consumer on, based on what they're buying? It seems through third-party data they might be going for the sort of cheaper end of the spectrum in terms of the items they're buying. Is there any sense that the consumer is feeling the pain of inflation? Well, I think all of us uh, as Americans are feeling the pinch of inflation. Um, all of us want to stretch our dollar as far as we can. What we saw in Prime Day is that members engaged across all um, sales prices from consumables and everyday essentials all the way up through the electronic devices. It's needs through wants. And that's why we built Prime Early Access Sale to have the top brands across the entire store so that members can meet those needs and wants. Uh, we've got top brands in health and personal care all the way to toys, to home, apparel, and electronics, which are you know of clearly a, a member favor every holiday season. And so we're seeing the same in engagement uh, now. We expect that to continue over the next uh, several hours through midnight tonight. Amazon's head of Prime there, Jamil Ghani, with our own Ed Ludlow. For more on this, I want to bring in our Bloomberg reporter, Spencer Sober, who, of course, covers Amazon. So, Spencer, Let's talk about uh, a potential disparity here and what the third party uh, folks are saying and what Amazon is saying. Just how good has this Prime Day actually been so far? Yeah, I think it's uh, what we're hearing is that there's, you know, slight lift from a usual day. Now we're getting some revised data from what we had earlier, you know, some, uh, you know, a, deep, a deeper look, a slight lift from from a typical day, but not nearly the same amount of lift as they had in the summer prime day. And I'm not sure that we're that far off. I mean, if you listen carefully to what the Amazon executive says, he uses words like shop and he uses words like engagement. And so he doesn't use words like buy and he doesn't use words like spend, you know? So <laughs> so enga engagement can be just a cute way to say, people. yeah, people are coming on the site, they're noodling around, they're looking at this, that, and the other, but they're not really buying a whole lot. So what does this tell us about the state of the consumer, potentially more broadly, leading into the holidays, or does it tell us something more about Amazon? Well, I think it's a little of both, right? You, I mean, it, it, it's not a secret that, that consumers are pulling back, that they're dealing with higher food and fuel prices, things that they have to buy and have less money you know, to spend on things that they want to buy. And then on Amazon, we're learning like on these kind of things, some of the top categories are like household essentials and pantry items and things. People just kind of spend in the sh to stock up on things they'd otherwise buy and not necessarily splurging on things like electronics and whatnot. But then in terms of Amazon, it's just they, they, they figured, hey, what the heck, we'll do another sale. And it was interesting. You said it, it wasn't about inventory. When it, when it is about inventory, that's really why Amazon was able to spin this thing up so quickly is because a lot of merchants, you know, the inventory is already there. They have it. 
Meantime, there have been some developments in unionization efforts at an Amazon warehouse in California. What's the latest on that? Yeah, this is pretty interesting to watch. So there's a, a one warehouse in Moreno Valley in the Inland Empire, and that's a real stronghold for Amazon. That's that's probably where they where they've got the most concentrated number of facilities and employees. And so one of them just submitted signatures uh, to push for a, a union election affiliated with this Amazon labor union, which was the one that uh, you know won approval for a union in in Staten Island, which Amazon is still contesting. And now there's a, a another vote coming up next week in Albany, again affiliated with this Amazon labor union. So starting to look like this thing's uh, spreading, and 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 Amazon's having a hard time containing it. All right, Spencer Soper, who covers Amazon for us, thank you. Coming up, weeks after the massive Adobe Figma deal, the other hot enterprise software startup has some news. Airtable CEO Howie Liu is with us next. This is Bloomberg. Collaboration software startup Airtable just announced its biggest launch of the year at its inaugural Airtable Leaders Forum. Coming up with a new connected apps platform that'll help companies like Netflix, LinkedIn, and iHeartMedia share data, manage workflows, track product roadmaps, and more. Co-founder and CEO Howie Liu with me now for more on this. So, you know, talk to us about the trends that you're seeing in enterprise software and why an announcement like this in, in your uh, mind is important. Like what problems does this solve? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's best to explain it in terms of where we came from and where we're going. So 10 years ago, Mark Andreessen said software is eating the world. We created Airtable really to kind of execute against that and empower the teams closest to the work in every company to be part of that disruption, to build the apps for themselves that they needed. Now we've seen this bigger problem within enterprises where it's not enough to just have individual apps, but those apps need to be connected and to allow the entire enterprise to all share a source of truth while enabling all those individual teams to still be really, really flexible and agile. So it's kind of a, the next frontier of Airtable you know, combining what we've already done, literally in these connected apps across an enterprise. Airtable benefited from some of those pandemic tailwinds, the shift to hybrid work. Has that kept up? What sort of workplace trends are you seeing now? I think a lot of what we're seeing now is that there is this huge need to rethink how work is being done, right? Especially in today's economy, it's not just about throwing more people at every problem. You can't just you know, double your, your headcount in every department to get more output, you need to rethink how efficiently you work. And that's where I think our, our enterprise vision of connected apps is really going to come into play. And it's already showing up in how we sell Airtable, how we're seeing our, our customers adopt Airtable. It's really about enabling more agility and more output. Um, you know, we talked about this, this customer case study uh, during our event earlier today of Equinox actually accelerating their content production efforts by 400% with the same team and during a pandemic where they were all working from home, nonetheless, using Airtable and connected apps. How do you see competition shaping up? There's uh, Asana, Monday.com, others that are vying to be the project management tool of choice. What is Airtable's advantage? 
Yeah, I think the the whole idea behind declaring our North Star as connected apps is that we're actually elevating ourselves out of that world of project management. We actually don't really care as much about the task management, small team use cases that I think a lot of the uh, the other products are are uh, going after. And instead, we're really trying to solve this bigger problem across an entire enterprise where you need these shared sources of truth, these high value golden data sets, as we call them. You know, for instance, Netflix having this this uh, master list of all the content titles they're producing, and then wanting to manage all of their marketing, their post-production, their legal rights management, et cetera, workflows across that data set. Um, and so it's really you know, us going out and taking on more companies like ServiceNow um, or even Salesforce with their app cloud efforts. Um, when we think about going and deploying apps across every other part of the enterprise, not just doing projects or tasks. I think some people are still recovering from the uh, shock of the big uh, Adobe Figma deal, $20 billion. And I just, I'm dying to hear your thoughts on it, given that Airtable is one of the few, you know, quote, hot uh, enterprise software startups that's often mentioned in the same breath as Figma. What's your take on this deal? I think Figma is an incredible uh, product company, has a great team. Um, you know, they started around the same time as us. So weirdly, we've been parallel. I think we both started around 2012, both spent years building a pretty technically uh, interesting product before launching. These were not products, Airtable nor Figma, that were built overnight as a hack project, but really a deliberate taking on of a really, really large market opportunity. I think ultimately the trend that's really benefited both of us is that for the first time on the web, when both of us started, you could build these really rich, desktop grade experiences, right? Figma could not have been built. You couldn't build that level of experience in the web, nor could you build Airtable um, in the web. And so I think we're both right place, right time to take on really large market opportunities and disrupting some incumbents as a result. Is getting acquired like that something that's attractive to you? Are you on the IPO path instead? I think that the best companies have to think about how to build an independent business, right? I mean, when you look at Figma, one of the reasons why it was so attractive as a business and, and why it's valued so much in this deal is because actually they could go to long, alone. They have the leverage. I mean, it's, it's growing very quickly. It's an amazing business. There's a massive TAM and it's truly a disruptive and delightful product, right? And so I think if you can go out and build a company that is truly capable of being a star in, in uh, a star independent business on the IPO path, then I think that also raises your attractiveness in this case for Figma through an M&A deal. So we've always been squarely focused on just building the best product and ultimately business and company that we can. And you know we're not optimizing for an acquisition. So we've seen valuations of tech startups fall across the board. You raised at an almost $12 billion valuation at the end of last year. Does that number hold up in a downturn or is Airtable in the rare category of startups like Figma potentially where that number potentially goes up? So the way I've always thought about it is the short-term valuation is just, it's a point in time. And what really matters for both us as team members working on this company, for shareholders who may consider investing in Airtable, is what is the long-term expected value of this business? Um, and especially since we're private and we don't have a public liquid value right now, what do we think this company will be worth in one year, two year, three years? 
And especially as the operators within the business, what can we do to drive towards the best possible result? And so I think as we push into connected apps and this bigger and bigger uh, possibility of solving a problem for enterprises at large, um, actually generating you know, multi-million dollar contracts repeatedly uh, and even you know, driving up our already best-in-class net dollar retention, I think we feel very good about the clear path that we can get to building a really extraordinary business that's highly differentiated as the unit economics to support a really premium multiple. And you know, whether there's overall multiple compression in the public markets in the near term, you know, I think the great businesses that ultimately go after really large TAMs and have durable growth potential can outgrow any of that compression because they just keep growing and growing. All right. Uh, interesting, interesting response there. Airtable co-founder uh, and CEO, Howie Liu. Good to have you back here on the show. Thank you for stopping by. Coming up, our conversation with former presidential candidate and tech entrepreneur Andrew Yang. His outlook on how startups and ventures survive in a downturn, crypto, tech regulation, and more coming up next. And later in the show, Grayscale's Michael Sonnenschein joins us to talk about the company's legal challenge with the SEC over a $12 billion ETF. This is Bloomberg. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. The global sell-off in semiconductor shares continues, but one name in Japan. Bucking that trend, our Ed Ludlow back with a look at Socio next. Ed. Yeah, we don't often talk about Japan, but let's look at Socio next in the context of this big sell-off we've seen in global chip stocks. It had its trading debut in Japan, in Tokyo on Wednesday, jumping 15%, a lot of investor interest here, generating around 67 billion yen or $456 million of proceeds. And what's so interesting about this name, it's a maker of uh, systems on a chip, or logic processors, for want of a better description, is there's a lot of appetite right now for what it's offering in a market where we have a lot of questions about global chip demand. If we bring up the next chart, this was actually the biggest IPO in Japan so far this year on a gross proceeds generated basis. It was the fourth IPO for a chip maker out of Japan this year. So it's really interesting to see that name buck the trend. We're also getting data points out of Vanda this Wednesday that actually see retail investors taking a keen interest in the chip space, even if we see institutional money kind of sitting on the sidelines or pulling out because we have concerns about a global slowdown. And speaking about those concerns, we look at this terminal chart. Investors are really pulling back earnings expectations for the chip sector. We've had bad news from a broad range of names. We're concerned about a slowdown in demand for consumer electronics, for memory chips uh, in particular, and the PC market. That scoop overnight from Bloomberg that Intel, according to sources, is going to cut thousands of jobs because of the PC slowdown. Well, this is the result, the market pulling back its expectations. But one name in Japan, Socionext, as we said, M, bucking that trend. All right, Ed, thank you. A name we don't normally hear about. Appreciate it. 
I want to zoom out now of chip stocks and get back to the broader macro environment with rising inflation and a falling market, the state of valuations and venture capital and startup innovation all top of mind at the Greenwich Economic Forum that is underway right now. Our next guest, entrepreneur and former presidential candidate Andrew Yang, joins us from there now. So, Andrew, obviously so much talk about what is going to happen with this economy. Are we or are we not going into a recession? Given your Venture for America background, I'm curious what your outlook is. If you are an entrepreneur uh, trying to get started in a downturn. Well, if you look at the track record of high growth companies, uh, Emily, and you know this full well, most of the really meaningful companies get started in a downturn like this one for a host of reasons. Uh, the fact is that an enterprise that succeeds in this time is going to be poised to really uh, mushroom as soon as the climate starts turning more positive. So I do think that this is going to be a very, very tough time, but guaranteed we're going to see tons of meaningful firms come out of uh, this period. What's your sense of how this tough time will compare to, let's say, the financial crisis or even the dot-com bust? Is there something different about it? No, uh, I think we have a, a, a ways to go uh, on the downslope myself. I mean, we can all see very clearly that the Fed is going to be jacking up interest rates for the foreseeable. And uh, there are a lot of uh, valuations that don't make as much sense uh, in that environment. So we're, we're going to all find out together how this compares to some of the tough times of the past. But uh, I certainly think that uh, folks should try and keep some uh, powder dry, uh, you know, make sure that you have enough cash to make it through for a little bit longer than you might hope. San Francisco is is one city that's having a, a tough time recovering from the pandemic. And now there's this downturn. You've got companies going remote. You've got companies moving to Austin or Miami. Do you think this the center of innovation, the, the fundamental center of gravity is actually going to shift and become more distributed? Or is it too early to say that? No, you and I both have friends uh, who have decamped to Austin or, or Miami. Uh, and I'm a big believer that innovation and growth will follow wherever the talent goes. So uh, if you have people who have permanently settled uh, in Austin, I think you're going to see uh, a permanent shift, truly. Um, now, the Bay Area, in my view, still has the highest concentration. Uh, of tech talent. So uh, it's still going to be the envy of many other cities. Uh, but I, I do think we're in a permanently different time where talent is going to be more distributed. And because of that, you're going to see capital be more distributed uh, and growth companies come out of places where they might not have otherwise. Congress has been trying to rein in big tech, and big tech has retaliated by spending a ton of money to kill one of the most aggressive oversight bills in years. What's your thought on, on whether that bill potentially needs to be revived and whether strong regulation is really needed? Oh, it, it's interesting, Emily. The po political climate has changed such that tech uh, now... Uh, is a bit of a punching bag for both parties. 
Um, and I'm of the, the belief that there have been some excesses that uh, regulation would be appropriate for. And a lot is going to hinge upon what the political climate is after these midterms. Uh, right now, the Senate is a toss-up by mo most accounts. Republicans are slightly favored uh, in the House. And I, I think that might change the prospects of some of the, the bills that we're talking about. You've been very vocal about data collection. You launched the data dividend products to help Americans take control of your data. How are you feeling about how tech com companies are handling that data right now and especially going in to an election? Uh, you know, it's, it's fascinating, Emily. As you know, I, I championed uh, the CPRA and data privacy uh, regulations in California where you are. And because California is now set a higher bar, uh, national legislation is increasingly likely and on the table, in part because tech companies wanted to supplant and replace the, the rules in California. Uh, our data is being used not to our benefit. It's a $200 billion plus a year industry. It's eroding our democracy, our kids' mental health. Um, so uh, I'm someone who thinks that we should own our data uh, and not only have it used more to our benefit, but if there is going to be market value gained, we should join in that benefit. Um, so that, that's where I'd like the national approach to go. Europe has new rules that are coming online in 2024, which is right around the corner. And I think that's going to increase pressure on the states to have uh, a more modernized approach. You've been branching out into crypto and Web3, and I'm curious what role or how much of a role you think crypto will play in fundraising going into 2024, and if you think Democrats or Republicans have more of an advantage. No, I, I think the single biggest donor in the last cycle was Sam Bankman-Fried, who you all probably know well. <laughs> uh, so uh, Web3... Uh, in, in my view, is going to be a very fascinating um, uh, political force uh, to be reckoned with. Um, right now, they're concerned, uh, obviously, um, largely with the regulation uh, of crypto itself. Um, but I, I think that you're going to see more people pushing into politics because now uh, the interaction with DC is going to be one of the main drivers uh, of whether enterprises are able to, to grow and operate um, successfully uh, anywhere, but certainly whether they're going to be headquartered here in the U.S. You also launched uh, Lobby 3 earlier this year. I'm so curious, how many people have bought into the tokens and what positions is Lobby 3 going to be advocating for? Yeah, lo Lobby 3 has been a, a great energized community of people that want to uh, push for common sense regulation out of DC um, that is intelligent and sophisticated and doesn't try and throw different um, types of assets together that has one regulator instead of kind of a, a hodgepodge. Um, uh, and it's been awesome getting to know people uh, who want the best things for creators and entrepreneurs in, in the space um, anytime I go to a, a Web3 gathering, there's some folks uh, who are part of the Lobby3 community, and it's been a lot of fun. 
As a former presidential candidate and the co-chair now of the Forward Party, I'd love to see into your crystal ball. Do you think a Biden-Trump face-off in 2024, is that inevitable? It's the most likely matchup right now, Emily. Uh, the odds are that Trump declares at the end of this year after the midterms, and then Biden declares either Q1 or Q2 of next year. Um, I will say that those two candidates will have a combined age of 159 in 2024, and 58% of Americans are not excited about either of them. So the, the question is whether a unity ticket or some independent effort arises, and a group called No Labels has very publicly invested $53 million in uh, ballot access for a potential unity ticket. I think there's going to be a lot of enthusiasm for some alternative after people face the reality that it is a rematch in 2024 between Trump and Biden. So let's say Biden doesn't run. Do you think the Democrats have a strong enough bench? Who's on that bench? Would you consider uh, running again? Well, I think Joe Biden likely declares because he feels he's the only one who can defeat Donald Trump because he did it once. And you can't argue with the fact that he did defeat Trump once. Um, but it's also tough to slot in uh, another Democrat who you have the same confidence in uh, necessarily if you're Joe or even if you're anyone, because right now um, it's unclear who the Democratic nominee would be. Um, I think that's one reason why Joe's going to run again, honestly. So how are you going to spend the next couple of years if you're not uh, running again? You know, where are we going to see you uh, place your energy and efforts and priorities given a you know very critical election coming up? Uh, so the Forward Party has endorsed a number of candidates around the country, including a U.S. Senate candidate named Evan McMullen, whom I'm going out to campaign in Utah for uh, th this weekend. We think we need to change the underlying incentives uh, for uh, our lawmakers and leaders by doing away with uh, closed party primaries and replacing them with primaries where anyone can vote for anyone through something called ranked choice voting. If there's one thing you remember from this interview out there, if, if you're you know, generally not that into politics. Ranked choice voting is the way out of this mess. It's a way that anyone can vote for uh, anyone with no spoiler effect, and it rewards more moderate, reasonable, collaborative candidates who actually come through for 51% of voters. Um, so I'm going to be trying to make ranked choice voting the law in as many places as possible, and I'm happy to say it's spreading around the country. All right. Uh, Andrew Yang, uh, always great to have you with us. Entrepreneur, obviously a former presidential candidate, co-chair of the Forward Party. Thank you, Andrew, for stopping by. Coming up, the latest salvo comes from Grayscale versus the FCC. Grayscale CEO joining us next to talk about the case for a Bitcoin ETF. This is Bloomberg.
Crypto asset manager Grayscale Investment says there is no justification for the SEC's rejection of a Bitcoin ETF earlier this year. The firm saying the SEC's rationale raises more questions than answers and will undermine trust in crypto. Here to explain is Grayscale CEO Michael Sonnenschein. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. So uh, give us the latest. Where does the lawsuit with the SEC stand at this moment? Well, last night, Emily, we filed our opening brief for the lawsuit. So this lays out our initial legal arguments to the court um, and is really the first substantive document as part of the litigation process. So it's important to remember this is a case about Bitcoin, but we're putting in front of our, you know, in front of the court system, really straightforward common sense arguments. I think one of the new arguments that's laid out here has to do with this idea of a significant market test, which the SEC has applied to Bitcoin ETF applications. They've applied this very stringently to spot Bitcoin ETF applications like Grayscale um, and other spot Bitcoin ETFs that have been denied, but very leniently to Bitcoin futures ETF applications, which is why we have several of them in the market. And there's really been no justification as to why this test is the, in fact, only test that the SEC should be using. And we've also never seen them use a test like this before when it comes to evaluating new products to bring to market. Have you spoken at all with Gary Gensler directly? You know, we have regular dialogue with really everyone in D.C. My legal team and, and myself are down in D.C. almost weekly these days. So we speak with all different parts of the SEC and other regulators. Now, look, recently there have been a ton of cases, fraud and bankruptcy in crypto. There's Terra, there's Celsius, there's three hours. Why is now the right time to prove to the SEC that this market is no worse in terms of market manipulation than others? Well, that's exactly the point. This significant market test that the SEC has laid out they believe protects investors from fraud and manipulation, and they got comfortable with that when it comes to Bitcoin futures. Well, the interesting thing and the flaw in that logic is that Bitcoin futures derive their pricing from the underlying spot Bitcoin market, which underpins GBTC and any other spot Bitcoin ETF application that's become you know, in front of the SEC and ultimately been rejected or denied. I think what we're seeing, though, in D.C. is probably the most engagement and understanding we've ever seen around crypto. You have bipartisan support now uh, with a variety of bills passing across the floor of Congress. And I think we and other industry you know, heavyweights are calling on our regulators, calling on our legislators to really develop new frameworks because otherwise we're squandering innovation here in the United States. The Winklevoss brothers were the first to try this spot Bitcoin ETF. It didn't fail. The road is littered uh, with carcasses of others who've tried and failed. How, how is Grayscale, with its huge scale, in your view, different? It's a great question, Emily. So today, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, ticker GBTC, is the largest Bitcoin fund in the world. It owns over 3% of all Bitcoin outstanding. A recent count said that there are more than 850,000 investors who own shares of GBTC in the U.S. alone, and that represents all 50 states. So when we, as an asset manager, are taking a product that's been in the market, has billions of dollars of assets, hundreds of millions of dollars of daily trading volume, 
has voluntarily become an SEC reporting company, and we know that the right thing for investors to protect them, to put additional disclosures and surveillance in place by becoming an ETF is the right thing for them, but our regulator is, is really shunning the opportunity to do so, well, we certainly take issue with that. And so our team has been putting the entire resources of the firm behind this ETF initiative, and we're as committed as we've ever been to it. What kind of a timeline do you see for a resolution of this case? Well, we filed the lawsuit uh, earlier this summer, and at that time, we were guided to believe it could be anywhere from 9 to 12 months, although it could be longer, could be shorter. What you're going to see now that Grayscale has filed its opening brief is over the coming weeks, you'll see a variety of amicus briefs. So these are other parties that are filing briefs with the court to put in front of the judges presiding over the case to really talk about their points of view on the issues at hand. And then ultimately, you'll see a brief from the SEC a couple of weeks later with their responses to the arguments that our legal team has outlined. We're also, you know, in the middle of what could be a really massive economic downturn. We just heard from Andrew Yang, who said he thinks we've got a lot further downward to go. What is your outlook and what it means for crypto? We're certainly in a crypto winter, and a crypto winter is characterized now by sustained lower prices. We're seeing from the investment community, though, that the lower prices are not causing them to shy away from the asset class. In fact, we're actually seeing investors continue to diversify. So a lot of investors now kind of have that core position in Bitcoin, core position in Ethereum or both, and they're now looking at other opportunities. And one of them is actually infrastructure. Uh, just last week, our team launched a totally new offering, uh, Grayscale Digital Infrastructure Opportunities LLC, which is an operating company that investors can put capital to work in that's actually buying Bitcoin mining hardware plugging it into the network and distributing that value back out to shareholders. So for a lot of investors, they've had that token exposure now, and now it's time that they think about the underlying infrastructure that secures the network. And so there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of activity going on despite the sustained lower pricing environment we find ourselves in. Speaking of the underlying infrastructure, the Ethereum merge ended up being kind of a non-event. What do you think the next big event is going to be, you know, that will, you know, catalyze changes in potentially blockchain technology. You know, Emily, respectfully, as someone who's been in crypto for nine years, it actually was a big event because this was a question mark hanging over Ethereum for a long time. Could we see a very well-known, very well-trafficked, very well-utilized digital asset protocol move and make such a meaningful move from proof of work to proof of stake? And Ethereum did it. Now, I think as we're seeing the outcome of that, it's very, very early days, and we're starting to see the development of more and more staking around Ethereum and other assets. Um, what's coming next is other upgrades to the Ethereum network, things like the ability to unstake assets that are put into the network for staking and other upgrades that will come down the line. But I certainly think it's an accomplishment for all the developers and everyone who really put a lot of time and many, many years of planning and energy into getting Ethereum to make this switch over. All right, point taken. Michael Sonnenschein, Grayscale CEO. We're going to continue to follow uh, your challenge to the SEC. Appreciate you stopping by. 
We'll be right back with more of Bloomberg Technology. This is Bloomberg. holding its latest employee benefits from staff at its only unionized retail store. The reason given, the store needs to negotiate the perks with Apple via their collective bargaining arrangement. But excluding unionized stores from new benefits, not a new trend. Starbucks also rolled out a series of new perks at non-union stores, including raises and student debt coaching, while saying that it can't legally provide them unilaterally to sites with union activity. SpaceX plans to announce two new space tourists slated to fly on the Starship rocket. Dennis Tito, the world's first ever space tourist in 2001, and his wife, the couple paid an undisclosed amount to fly around the moon on Starship once the vehicle is complete. They will travel with 10 other undisclosed passengers on a roughly week-long journey. The trip doesn't include a landing on the lunar surface, and it's unclear if the other passengers have been chosen yet. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. On Thursday, we've got Tron's Justin Sun on to talk about the future of DAOs and all things crypto and Web3. And don't forget to check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. Audio Jumps. Entrepreneurship, leadership, and free market capitalism. You are listening to Kyle Keegan. Welcome back to the Kyle Keegan Radio Show, where we are bringing producer-centered radio to your favorite podcasting apps. What is this show about? We are here to bring out the very best in entrepreneurs. We make way more than a living. We build things that are bigger than just us and our own efforts. We embrace entrepreneurs and the value that they bring to the world. We believe that entrepreneurship is a high calling and an honorable pursuit. Our own efforts are finite, but our businesses can be infinite. The world's resources are available to good leaders, and it is our job to be those good leaders. Having created great wealth means that we created great value, an option chosen above alternatives by our customers, investors, and employees. Our value creation improves lives. If you want to interact with the show, your options are Telegram and thefastlaneforum.com by MJ DeMarco. This is not a Hustle Bro podcast where I want you to follow me all over the internet, and you're welcome for that. If you are getting great value out of this show, please give us your five-star reviews and also tell your friends. I'm not selling courses. I'm not doing anything. As a matter of fact, I just updated my thread on the Fastlane Forum to say, this is free course level entrepreneurial content, and there's no funnel. 
right? How many times do you go around and you see, oh my gosh, free content, you know, free, absolutely free. And it's not free. It's actually not, <laughs> right? It's just a, a, a presentation to get you to buy something bigger and more expensive than you would have before. So you lend them an ear for longer than you normally would because, oh, geez, it's free, right? And then they sell things to you the entire time. I'll have sponsors in the future. I've had sponsors in the past, but this is not a funnel to get you to do something expensive, right? This is entrepreneurial content, the free exchange of great information. And the reason I'm doing this is because I believe that having that respect and building that influence is good for me and it's good for you guys. So it is still a win-win, even though I don't make a bunch of money hand over fist doing this. Maybe one day, but not right now. Anyway, I'm not charging you for it. The idea basically is please give us your five-star reviews and tell your friends about the show. Let's grow this show. Thank you for listening to the show, but not just for listening. Thank you for being who you are. I appreciate the value-creating entrepreneur problem solvers in this world, and that's what you guys are. If you stick around with this show and you like this type of content, you're the type of person that I'm thankful for in this world. You're the type of person that makes the world a better place. So thank you, not just for listening, but being who you are. Welcome to episode 325. I hope you enjoyed 324, where we discussed, me and Mr. Volodya Gusek discussed quiet quitting. And it was kind of a new concept to us and we heard about essentially people deciding to check out at work. Instead of try their best, they just want to check out and collect a paycheck. And we discussed this at length and essentially from a position of an employer, an entrepreneur and stuff like that. We were pretty disgusted by the idea of this, but also disgusted by the idea of a company creating a culture that produces quiet quitters. There are companies loaded full of quiet quitters, and that is very poor leadership. So there's two sides to this coin. Uh, I don't believe that quiet quitting is what's best for you. If you ever decide that you're in the wrong place, I do not believe that quiet quitting is the option for you because you're actively remaining in a place that is wrong, right? So unless you believe that you actually can do better, you know, this whole act your worth thing is something that they love to talk about. And if you really do feel as though you are worth more, then go get it. Absolutely waste no time, right? Properly quit and go get it. Now, if this is just a show and you say you're worth more, but you know you're really not deep down, maybe that's something that you should change. That is a poor attitude and you should be happy that you have a job with an attitude like that. And from where you are right now, you should thankfully address your work and make sure that you push the limit and do better and better each and every day. And then maybe you will actually be worth more. 
And if you if your boss doesn't see it and your company doesn't appreciate it, there is always, again, that option to leave. Whether you are an employee or an entrepreneur, value is appreciated. If you provide great value, somebody is going to take notice and somebody is going to be willing to pay for that. So always keep that in mind when you're addressing your work. Always provide value. Become indispensable. That would be my suggestion. A level of indispensability at a company opens doors for advancement within that company, or it also opens doors for advancement as you want to go and start your own business. Both are available to somebody who is indispensable. You know what's going on if you're that indispensable person. You have the inside track. That would be a really good position to start from when you're looking at being an entrepreneur. So quiet quitting, in my opinion, is not an option for those of us who actually want to be high-performing entrepreneurs or maybe in a job now temporarily looking forward to the day when we are, in fact, entrepreneurs. It is, in my opinion, and the opinion of Volodya Gusek, a high-performing entrepreneur himself, it is not an option. Anyway, I really do appreciate him and what he brings to the discussion. So I have invited him to be kind of more of like a correspondent on the show. And you'll hear from him more often now. So I I just really appreciate his input. I think he has a lot to add to many of our discussions here. So he's going to send in some sound bites from time to time. And anything that, you know, he might weigh in on and have a different perspective than me, I think that will be valuable uh, for the listeners. So I'm, I'm very thankful to have had him and then to continually have him contribute to the show. So thank you to Velodia. We have some epically great content ahead for you today. We're going to be discussing thinking bigger and how we implement that in our businesses. It's been a long time since I have been asked questions in the think big and then think bigger than that thread. But there's an inquisitive young man by the name of Mike who actually started his own podcast recently and has had a couple of great guests on that as well, including myself. And we see something in him. Clearly, he's asking really good questions We are answering them, and he's following them up with really good questions to continue. And honestly, ladies and gentlemen, this is an exercise for us as the respondents as well. This has been something that we really need to think about what we believe and why we believe it, and I like that. I like to be challenged in that way because it brings up a lot of things in me. No matter how aggressive you are in business, I believe that there is this little bit of gravitational pull that increases as you gain more success in business. There's this gravitational pull towards contentment. And I really don't mean to belittle the idea of contentment because we should be happy with what we have and all of that kind of stuff. But I think as an entrepreneur, instead of being happy with what we have and then just complacent, because there's a difference, right? I think a lot of people will take that contentment and become complacent. Uh, Rather, we want to be happy with the journey. 
right? We want to be happy with the process that we've built that we're a part of, okay? Instead of necessarily being happy with where we are in life and just kind of quiet quitting our lives. So there is, in fact, a poll, right? Some people call it affluenza, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Once you get to a certain level, there is a point where you aren't as motivated as you once were. And these questions, these questions from a young guy like Mike, who wants to build great things in this world and hasn't gotten to a point in his business career yet where he's getting a little bit complacent, stuff like that. It's energizing to those of us who were there once and who might have grown a little bit of this complacency. And the problem is we don't want that. We want to shed that. And I think by answering these questions and working on this type of stuff, it's it, it breathes new light and new energy into what we're working on. So I have to thank Mike for the questions as much as he will likely thank all of us for the answers. So anyway, it's it's a great process, and I love teaching this kind of stuff, and I love the interactions that we can have on a place like the Fastlane Forum. This thread at the Fastlane Forum is an oldie but a goodie. It's one of my gold threads, gold status threads at the Fastlane Forum, and it is titled Think Big and Then Think bigger than that. So it it basically alludes to, yes, think big, but push it even farther, right? Get a wildly large idea in your head and chase it. And there was an interesting quote in there from Andy Frisella, who I did not post that. That was another poster who posted that. And Andy Frisella says, your goals should embarrass you. I love that. You should literally be embarrassed to tell people like, well, what are you planning on doing with this company? Well, I want to, you know, take it to a couple billion dollars. And most people will hear that and say, oh, yeah, (laughs) good luck with that. And they don't really mean it, probably because long before they let life beat the fire out of them. Instead of keeping that fire in their eye and really chasing something that they actually wanted, they settled for less. And anyone who has that settling mentality, right? They let that complacency take over is immediately dismissive of somebody with those great goals. So I love getting back to that. Your goals should embarrass you. Take note. I love what that means for us as entrepreneurs. And I'm ashamed to say that my goals haven't embarrassed me lately. So I need to get back to the more embarrassing goals. Now here, granted, once you are that person who is known to be a business person in various circles, people come to expect more out of you. So you've got to raise the bar. If you want to keep embarrassing yourself, (laughs) you have to push it even harder. So anyway, keep that all in mind. This thread, a little backstory is about the Texas Central railroad that they were putting. It's a high-speed rail between Houston and Dallas, and it stops in College Station, and it's supposed to allow people to, even if they wanted to, commute from Houston to Dallas, which is normally like a four-hour drive, something along that. Anyway, it was a big thinking 
deal. And it was just an example because I had a little bit of inside information to it at the time. And these were not independently billionaire type people who started this. They were executives from various walks of lives and engineers and all of this kind of stuff that came together under one CEO who played the orchestra, right? Ladies and gentlemen, found the money for what he wanted to produce, right? So he found between bonds and, and being able to get big investors and all kinds of things, he was able to raise a great deal of money. He was able to put together a great team and he was able to start the ball rolling on something he absolutely could not have done without thinking bigger than himself. Very few people in this world would have been independently wealthy enough to just finance this entire thing. It was several billions of dollars that were planning to be invested into this. And these guys had nowhere near that. Now, I'm not saying that they are inexperienced because they went about becoming the experts and they wanted to build the first high-speed rail in the States. What did they do? They went out there and they studied the other examples of great successful high-speed rails from other countries and all of that kind of stuff and figured out the best practices, became the U.S. American experts for high-speed rail installations. So they were, when they went for the money, the right people for the job, right? They did that. They didn't have the money themselves, but they got the knowledge and they became the experts necessary to do it. So it was inspiring to me that this was something that a relatively normal person took on and they became extraordinary. Now, this isn't finished yet. I don't know. There's some political pressures against it now and, and all kinds of things going on in Texas. But I have to say, it took enormous leadership to say, we're going to embark on perhaps a multi-decade project. And we have the outlook that one day this will be an enormous and ridiculous business to own. And the big picture isn't just selling tickets for people to ride on a little train between Houston and Dallas. The, the big picture is you are shrinking the world. You are somebody being responsible for the shrinkage of two very major cities in relation to one another. That distance between them is closed. Think about that. It is not just passengers. It is goods. It is materials, all kinds of things. Think what kind of opportunity something like that opens up. So it really was super big thinking. Anyway, thread was bumped by Mr. Mike, and he asked several questions that I did not feel like I wanted to type up. And I think everybody's going to be better served by hearing it in this format than sort of typing it out and, and not really understanding the nuances there. So not only am I going to answer these questions, but I also have some sound bites from Mr. Velodia Gusak where he answers the questions and maybe gives a slightly different perspective than me. So this is a valuable segment we're headed into now. Okay, so the small sub-discussion starts off like this. Somebody's asking, essentially, 
if you want to serve, let's say, the oil industry and you want to serve them up with some massive value of some sort, how could I get started, right? Which is is kind of a vague question because where in the oil industry do you currently reside? Why do you want to choose that industry? What problems do you think you can solve? All of that kind of thing. So I answered that question back in 2018, actually. Your question becomes, how do you propose they fix whatever problem it is? And then how does that compare to what they do now? And why is it better? If you can answer those questions honestly and blow their doors off with value, then you have something that you could potentially build a team around. Remember what I always say, ladies and gentlemen, is that you can do anything you want as long as you can convince enough people it's a good idea. And we're not just talking about being a convincing person. We're talking about being the legitimate person right? This isn't fake it till you make it. This is not building this persona that is convincing. It's being legitimately convincing because it's a legitimately good idea. So the answer to that question is people, right? People make things happen. They're the source in business. They're your customers. They're your investors. They're what make your business work. You cannot have a good business without people. So now we fast forward nearly four years to discuss that post that I made back then about people being the answer to that problem. And I stand by it all these years later. Heck, I haven't, I didn't even have the radio show back then. I didn't have any of this back then. And people are still the answer to that question. Anyway, Mike asked the question, any chance you can give an example of win-wins that don't involve a ton of money? And the answer is no, because I don't want to, right? There are win-wins that don't involve a ton of money, but I don't actually want to answer that question because that answer or answering that question specifically gives validation to the fact that you're going to go in it and try to do something with less money, okay? I don't want to give validation to the idea that you should seek something that doesn't cost a lot of money. Why would you do that? Right, with an understanding that what matters is leadership and what matters is being the expert and what matters is orchestrating something, as we've teed up earlier in this show. Why would you dive deeper into this and say, well, okay, I want to get started, but I don't want to spend a bunch of money? See, that to me, and I'm not harping on you, Mike, because I know you'll end up listening to this, but that type of question alludes to the fact that there was a misunderstanding earlier in the thread and earlier in potentially this discussion on this show. Well, how do I get started? This sounds inspiring, but I don't want to spend a lot of money. The train people, the people building the high-speed rail, right? That involved a ton of money, money that none of those people had, right? But they did it anyway. They found a way to put it together and keep rolling the ball forward. It's one bite at a time. It's one foot at a time, one foot in front of the other, all those little phrases that people like to say, but all of a sudden they have something that has materialized. They've walked towards it. They've become the experts. They have talked to the right investors. They've talked to investors that rejected them. They have walked this ball forward and they have understood 
all of the little pivots that they've had to make over the time makes them better and better and better until all of a sudden this has turned into something. And it has. They're building stuff. They're clearing trees. They're doing stuff like that. And it may take a long time for this thing to be finished. They have the money. Wow. It's financed. They didn't have to write checks personally. And the checks that they could write personally, they they wouldn't be big enough. Okay. So I want to instill in you, Mr. Mike here. There is always somebody who can write a bigger check than you and not hurt, right? Whatever, pick an amount that might be a lot, a big risk for you to write a check and invest in your business, right? There's always someone who can write 10 times that check and not care, right? And they are all looking for investment opportunities, particularly today. We have such an ugly market. People want alternative investments. This is one of the best things in the world for an actual business providing actual value that's going to watch their cash flows and turn a profit. These blank check companies based on negative interest rates and all of that kind of stuff that's been happening over the last several years, like that stuff's going to fade away. What they want is real tangible value being provided, something that sounds solid. And if you're it, you're somebody who can bring that to an investor, man, you can write your ticket. So the answer to that question is, no, I'm not going to give examples of businesses or what kind of business should I start or anything like that. And I'm specifically not going to answer a question that says, what can I do that doesn't involve a lot of money? Because you should open your expectations a little bit more. And understand that if you have the right idea and you have the right expertise that you built, right? You might say, oh, I don't have the expertise. Well, you got to build it, right? You got to figure that out too. If you have all of that stuff and you take it one step at a time, the money won't matter. You can get the money. Anyway, next question says, reading this thread and chatting with you recently has opened my mind up like I've never seen before. He says, I'm not going to lie. I currently don't feel like I'm working on a big enough problem and I'm actively looking for something bigger to jump into. You and me both, brother. That is something that we all have to deal with as entrepreneurs. I want to apply my big thinking business stuff to something. I had a government technology business that didn't really go the way I'd planned in my early 20s. And that was a company that was expected to be a multi-billion dollar company. And it did not go the way that I had planned. It didn't work out. But at the same time, I am desperate to get back to something of that sort of project. Those of you who follow the show know that I'm in an industrial company right now, and we mostly sell chemicals, but we're also getting into some building materials now. So we're, we're pushing the bar and it's a great business, you know, but it's also something that doesn't capture the type of scale that I believe I'm capable of. So you and me both, man, we're, we're looking at the same type of thing, just at different stages in life. Anyway, next question. I have a limiting belief. Every time I think of a big problem, I automatically think of extreme complication and a ton of money being involved that I don't have. I get motivated thinking about it, calling all of these people with these awesome value proposition. So I don't really know if that's a question. Yes. Uh, if you get those ideas, 
right? These ideas that might embarrass you because hmm, they're really complicated and they need a ton of money. And who am I? I'm just a 19 year old kid. Stop it, right? Stop it. There are VCs that really like the young kids, right? There are VCs that are like, if you're a 32 year old, like I personally am, you're ancient. Oh, we don't want to talk to people like you. We want to talk to the young people. So there's always some kind of excuse that somebody can, can attach to their age. But the fact of the matter is that it, it be, it's an excuse no matter what stage you're using it, right? So I could easily say that 32 is too old. There are people who are 52 who are like, I don't know if I'm too old. No, stop it, right? Stop that. Don't use those excuses or have those limiting beliefs. Get motivated about it. And if you are going to make progress, right? You are going to start calling all of these folks. You're going to start getting a little bit of progress and start rounding out what this could potentially look like. You're only going to get more motivated. And that's how I started that government technology company. I was only 23 years old when I started that company. And I was very interested in helping solve a legitimate problem that the Highway Institute had been wanting to solve for a very long time. So it was essentially a law enforcement technology for the government. We'll leave that there. But there was a company out there, a multi-billion dollar company, that made the type of technology that I needed in order to serve that market. And it was a repurposing, a huge, massive repurposing. And of course, it cost me money to book a plane ticket and fly out there and meet with the CEO of that company. But what it allowed me to do was round out the picture. Okay, yes, it cost me personally money to go do that, but it round out the picture. Then I took some meetings with some high-level government consultant types who said, yes, this is something that they are looking for. They are actively seeking solutions to this problem, and this actually is the first thing they had heard of that would actually solve the problem, right? If implemented it had a 100% chance of solving the problem, the way the program would work. So I had consultants that were energized on this, right? Consultants that had worked on other highway projects and law enforcement projects and things of that nature. So now I have who kind of started off on my advisory board, right? Because I'm talking to them and fielding them to see if I want to hire them later, giving me great information to round out the case that I'm building, right? So they're telling me, yeah, I think we could do this. Yes, I think this is a great idea. Oh, and by the way, they're the ones responsible for the red light cameras across the entire state of Texas. They got it done, right? So now imagine if you're an investor and here's Kyle, right? 23 years old, going to enter my office and say, hey, we have a technology from a multi-billion dollar company that can copy and paste as many times as we want that will serve a market that they are actively seeking to serve, right? They're actively seeking solutions in this market and they have said as much, right? And we have consultants who say they can do it, 
who are responsible for some of the biggest projects that are related to this that have ever happened in the state that also say this is good. Here's my case, right? And here's what it could be worth. How hard do you think it was for me to start raising a little bit of money and then going back to those consultants and saying, hey, guys, let's get started and start talking to some people, right? It wasn't actually that difficult because I became the expert. I went around and collected evidence. And even though that business did not work out the way we had hoped, the investors are still happy with me. Okay. Let me be clear about that. I haven't burned bridges or anything of that nature. We gave it a really good shot. And this was a massive risk and reward. And it was very dependent on the political breezes through the government. Hey, you know, you wonder why I might be very anti-government, right? Because people who promise things lie all the damn time. So we've thought we've had this in the bag more times than we can count. But at the same point in time, it taught a very valuable lesson, right? Go grab your evidence, go get that evidence. And it doesn't matter if you don't have the money. I certainly didn't. I didn't have enough money in my checking account to pay one of those consultants for six months. And at the time that I brought them on board, they would make more per month off of my business than I had ever made in my life. Just the consultants. And somehow, despite that fact, I ended up employing them for the better part of seven years, okay, and working on this project for the better part of seven years, not covering various opportunities and whatnot. But the bottom line is I didn't have the money, but somehow I made it work. So get rid of the limiting beliefs and start building that case, building that evidence that you are the right person for this job. No one else was bringing these types of solutions to the table at the time. So I was the guy for the job. It didn't matter that I was 23 years old. And I was actually pretty self-conscious about that. I absolutely was. But it didn't matter because I had a leadership mentality on this and people wanted to be a part of something great. And it turns out that even through years of this, right? There were people still beating on my door, trying to give me money. On the last round of money that I raised with this project, I actually had somebody come to me and things were going so badly, right? So badly in this that I'm like, no, you know, I, I, I wouldn't invest in this if I were you. I'm just going to be fully open with you. And basically what alludes to someone can always write bigger checks than you he said, don't tell me what I would invest in. I thought that was very interesting. He wanted in, right? He still wanted in because he knew that even though it was becoming less and less of a chance that this could happen, the potential for payout was enormous for him. So he wanted to take that bet. He still wanted to take that bet despite that. And honestly, he even said, because you're such a straight shooter and because you're somebody who literally told me not to invest, you were looking out for me, right? You owe me nothing, but you were looking out for me. And I appreciate that. And I'd rather invest with you than any number of people who want investments from me right now. I cannot stress enough how much just being full of candor and a leader can bring you.
the opportunities just knock on your door, man. So you need to know that. And, and that is really the route that you should take in my opinion. And then you go on to ask what really is there to offer these people is pitching investors. A needed thing is trying to bootstrap something a waste of time. I, what is there really to offer people? Anything, anything, any improvement under the sun, right? Go read zero to one by Peter Thiel. Okay. It discusses essentially competing with the status quo, one upping what's going on in the world now, and you being a part of that one upsmanship, right? Anything can be provided to anyone, right? Whatever they're doing now, it can be improved upon and you can make money off of that improvement. Is pitching investors a needed thing? Well, no, of course not. You can start a business without investors. My current industrial company didn't have actually any investors, right? I just started it with a great partnership with a big company. And I also have a family office that I have available to me for purchase order financing. So that really isn't a a investment per se. It's more of a ability to fulfill and do what I say I can do by having partnerships. Okay. So good, good partners built that into something bigger than me. I by no means am suggesting that as the end all business model. I believe you, if you have a really good idea, something that can solve great problems, you should absolutely go after that big idea, even if you don't have the money for it, or you believe you don't have the experience for it, build them both, right? One step at a time, become the person for that job. It's not fake it till you make it. It's become the person necessary to do something. So what is there to offer these people? Everything is pitching investors a needed thing. No, not every time, but I would suggest that you don't rule it out as trying to bootstrap something a waste of time. No, it's not a waste of time, but I would also say think bigger. Anyway, he goes on to say in one of your episodes, I also remember you said you didn't take much risk because you were very methodical about your growth, but it isn't getting money from an investor risky and scary. If you aren't positive, something will work out like being in charge of someone else's millions of dollars. Hypothetically, it seems rather daunting. Well, it isn't. Honestly, when you are completely and totally full of candor and honest with everybody who you do business with, okay? I talk about this all the time. You cannot blow smoke forever. You cannot sit there and say, well, yeah, things are going great. You know, ever the optimist, we're really optimistic about this next meeting. We're really optimistic about this next meeting. No, I'd go to meetings and if they didn't go well, I'd be on the phone with the investors on my drive home saying, no, it didn't go well this time. Here's what we have on the horizon. Here's what we're going to continue to work on. And here is my pivot strategy, right? It didn't go well. Sorry, it didn't go well, but I'm going to always be straightforward with you guys because you're going to know what's going on and where your money is and how it's working for you. It was never really daunting. As a matter of fact, it took a big amount of stress off of my shoulders. As a matter of fact, I didn't have to worry about books or payroll. I had people for that. I didn't have to worry about travel expenses. I had money for that. All of the stuff that I needed to run this business and be the leader and be the optimal guy was available to me. It was actually something that removed stress from me. And you want to know 
where I think the stress comes from about managing other people's money and having that responsibility on your shoulders, I think it comes from the building of a house of cards. It's the the little, not lies, but not full truth scenario that some people go into. The book I will recommend for this might be Bad Blood. It's the book about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. Okay. She was the leader who surrounded herself with all of the good people. She also had a failed business like me, right? But things turned out extremely different for me than they did for her. I have a very good reputation now. I could actually continue to raise money. Why? Because they know I fought for them valiantly. I kept them abreast of absolutely everything I did. And despite the fact that the idea did not work out, they know that I gave it my all and it wasn't because of me. It wasn't my fault. They know that. And it wasn't because I made excuses either. It's because I gave them a front row seat, ladies and gentlemen. I was so unbelievably honest with them through the entire process that I never felt that I had a house of cards. So when the wind blew, I didn't worry about getting blown over. I just said, hey, yeah, remember our update last time? Well, it didn't go well this time either, right? It was already that situation. Now, also, it doesn't hurt that these folks knew that they were getting into a business that had a very high payout, a very high reward, but also a very high risk because it was very dependent on the political wins. So they knew that going in. They knew what they were getting into. And then they knew as I went through this process what was going on. So I think the stress that many people may say comes from having other people's money and managing that and doing well by your investors comes from people who aren't naturally good at being good for their investors, who aren't good stewards of other people's money, who go around and maybe spend too much on things. When I'd go on business travel, I wouldn't fly first class unless I got upgraded. Or if I did upgrade, I'd pay for it personally. I wouldn't pay for it on the business. They knew I stayed in hotels like La Quinta's and Holiday Inn Express. I didn't go stay in the Hyatt's unless I got a ridiculous deal on Hotwire or something like that. Like They all knew that I was a really good steward of their money, even though there was a bunch of cash sitting in the bank account for this. They knew that I took good care of them, and they knew that I was a straight shooter. And no, it wasn't, as it turns out, super stressful for me. I wanted the deal to work because it was my life's work, and that was the stressful part. But no, it, it wasn't the money that was the stressful thing. Anyway, you go on to say, why would they give a 19-year-old with not much track record access to their resources? It's not about the track record. It's about who you are and what you bring to the table. Okay, so you can build that case like I've talked about. You can assemble the right evidence that you're a good bet. That's what this is all about. Don't bring a five-year projection of your finances based on absolutely nothing. That's a lie. Okay, bring what you have, everything solid that you have, and make more solid stuff to bring them. 
I know there is negativity traced in the above, but I'm just putting my thoughts out there trying to find answers so that I can understand better. I hope that you do understand better based on what I have shared today. And then you've got a few more questions right at the bottom. How do you get over the fear of if I call this person, I'm so beneath them, they're just going to be thinking, what? Why the hell do you have the audacity to call me? I have everything I need and I don't need you. Okay. That's a good point. You know, that's a good question. I had a billion dollar company I wanted to go and make a partnership with. Okay. And they had, I don't know, 300 or more employees. I mean, I'm at this big office building and here I am in the C-suite talking to essentially their directors, right? Their CEO and a couple of their VPs and all of this kind of stuff trying to put together a deal at 23 years old. These guys all had gray hair, all of this kind of stuff. I uh, I was driving over there in my crappy rental car, right? And this was in California, actually. I flew out to California to do it. And I was thinking to myself on the way to that meeting, who the hell do you think you are, Kyle? Right? Do you honestly think that you can pull this off? And it's it's a lie. You know, that kind of stuff can creep into your head. But somehow I was able to get that meeting because somehow I was able to attract them to want to sit down. They were all excited to meet with me. So something must have been there. And that to me helped me out, right? I went into that meeting nervous. Of course I was nervous and I nailed it. I made a deal with a billion dollar company to serve my needs in a GovTech industry, right? I had everything I needed from that one company to serve that industry. And it was incredibly cool. And it was an industry that they knew nothing about. So the answer is I impressed them, but I also showed them how they could make a lot of money with me together. And so who are they to say no? If this could go right, this could double their business too. So I think the biggest thing you might want to remember about this is even if they are a CEO and even if they are, you know, a perceived master of the universe to you, they are open to opportunities just the same. They are beholden to people. They're responsible to people. They want to do a good job because there are people that will ultimately fire them. The investors, the owners, the money people can still fire them from that position. So if you are bringing a great opportunity to the table that could potentially help them out a lot, and also in our case was zero risk to them because they would just simply be a great part of our supply chain, right? So we'd be paying them. There was nothing to lose to hear us out. And they were always excited. And even then they stuck with us for years and years when things weren't going right. They, they said, you know, we, you have anything you need from us. We're here to support you in any tweaks that you need, any technology changes you need, anything that can make this easier to sell pick up the phone and talk to us. So they were always extremely supportive. Why? I don't know. Probably because they saw value in it and they saw fire in my eye to chase it. And that, in my opinion, is highly, highly important. So I hope that this answered some of your questions. I have also that clip from Mr. Velodia Gusek, and I believe that he has something incredibly good to add 
as well. So I'm going to go ahead and play that for you guys too. Hi, Kyle. Thanks for having me on your show, especially in a topic as big and important as thinking bigger. You know, it's probably one of the most impactful lessons I've learned. I was fortunate enough to take advantage of and think and apply in my own business. So I really appreciate you uh, allowing me to share my thoughts with your listeners. Thanks for having me. I'll dive right into it. The concept of thinking bigger to me uh, once prompted with Mike and saying, how do I think bigger without having to put in more money into it? The way I look at it is, you know, to me, thinking bigger is th- the best way to approach it is to awaken a your inner child. Because when we were children, and you and I are both parents, so we know that, children are great at create creative solutions to achieve their objectives. They have an unlimited imagination in terms of how to come up with a different solution to get what they want. And they want so many things. If the kid doesn't want to eat, they have a way to try to manipulate you. If they don't want to sleep, they want to wake up too soon or, you know, all of buy the toys, play with the toys, etc. Now, their creativity is completely unencumbered by any limiting beliefs that we typically as adults start holding. So, if it is in our natural frequency to be acting this way, why not tap right into it? To me, that is the first step to thinking bigger. The first step is to make sure that you understand that it is within you. You are creative. We were all born creative. It's just later on, we kind of get a little less so by virtue of learning some rules and just following those rules. I actually love his point here so much. And there was even an example of a young kid that was posted to the forum. And I actually did a radio show about him before that, that built a pretty amazing little empire by the time he was 14. And he, he actually died in a tragic accident. I think it was kayaking or something of that nature, but he amassed quite an empire, built a great business, had, had things going on. And I always thought that the reason for that is life hadn't beaten the fire out of him right? Life hadn't told him, oh, good luck with that. Like I alluded to earlier in this show, there are those people who let the world beat the fire out of them, right? They let it all happen. And then when somebody has those audacious goals, those bigger than you goals, those ones that would even embarrass them, the majority of people might say to them, good luck with that. Yeah, right. You know, I actually personally think that this is a matter of making sure that negativity doesn't creep into your own mind. I actually, in a phone call discussion with Velodia after he recorded this and sent this over to me, I said, as it turns out, I actually have a really great guy on my advisory board with my chemical company right now. And he has like 50 years of hardcore CEO chemical experience from big company. Like he is the absolute real deal. And I swear to you guys, every time I come up with something, it's always why, you know, you can't do that or whatever. He tells me I can't do stuff all the time, right? He always tells me I can't do stuff, but I do it anyway. And that's, what's kind of funny. It's a hilarious dynamic of the world not beating the fire out of me. The world had beaten the fire out of him. He has the world's most clout for this industry. It's absurd. And we laugh together as we do deal, right? That's the bottom line. Cause I do it, even though he says I can't do it, I've done it multiple times. It's just kind of funny. I like having him around and he's a, he's a great dear friend, but it's also 
you know, quite funny, right? You've got these experts and you've got to be wary of these experts in your life, right? Because experience isn't always a great thing. Sometimes experience can be a hindrance. Instead of opening doors, you're closing mental doors because of your own experience. Things may be different now. Things may change. We may do something differently now. Anyway, we'll continue with Velodia. So diving right into the idea of how to get, get creative without additional money um, and, and expand your business. And for this purpose, let's say it's 10x is the main goal. The way I would look at it is stop focusing on the money. Seriously, remove that from, from your main uh, sort of limiting factor saying, oh, I don't have enough money. Okay, great. You know, so does everybody else. It's kind of the same problem we all have, right? Uh, typically, most people you meet will not have enough money, right? So how, what else can you do? And this is where I think that inner child creativity really can, um, you know, bring in solutions that are not as obvious. And I would say that when you think about your customer, instead of being limited to, in the case of Mike, so he's got video editing business, that only people who need video editing are your customers, I would redefine that term and say, instead of focusing on who's your customer, think about who are your users. And the users would be who are the users of both services that you offer and the knowledge that you may have to offer. Um, that, that expands the field of vision just widely. Because now you think about people who may write as a blog post about video editing, but they may not know as much as you do because you're the one actually doing the work. People who may have equipment, physical equipment, really that is the best at recording those videos, et cetera. People who have software, they might need to promote it. I mean, that's the, that's the stuff that I posted in the, in the thread. So just be creative. That's the intent here. Once you produce a large list of users for your type of services, then you come out with ways, how can you help them? Because once you help them, you know, there will op this will open up the opportunities for you to monetize that help. And this is key. Do not stay, uh, you know, committed to the idea that you must get paid for whoever it is that you've just helped. Consider that maybe your monetization strategy occurs after you've helped somebody through another channel. And that's the idea. That's the bigger thinking. Instead of being focused like, well, if I help this guy, I need to get paid for this. Instead, is there another way where it's a true win-win, where that person who has had your services potentially, let's say on a blog, talking about your video services, et cetera, has now had the access to that knowledge, pro produced content for their listeners and their um, readers, and now your name was out there. So now you've grown your 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 own popularity through that, and you can get clients that way. So, you know, don't be greedy and be creative. That's how I look at it. As always, I liked this as well, but I would even add to it, who could be the bigger swing, right? So in terms of, and, and I'm sorry that I haven't discussed this in terms of just a video editing company for the entire episode, but in terms of a video editing company, who could provide an enormous amount of video editing work for you, right? Who outside of like just an individual customer that you may have that, that might just take your stuff off the shelf the way you offer it. What about you being an outsourced contractor to do that video editing type work for 
a company that needs an incredible amount of it. Are there any types of companies out there that provide like ancillary services that don't really provide what you provide, but you could offer them via contracting with you a way to offer your services in addition to what they provide, right? That's always something that you have available to you and they may already have a massive stream of customers available. So that's one deal and a whole bunch of work for that one deal. Now I'm hoping that you've taken to heart our leadership discussions here and you're not going to physically do all of the work yourself. You're going to have a way that, you know, maybe your company is making three to $400 an hour or something like that. You can find somebody for 60 to 80 that does a really, really good job for you. Something along those lines, make this infinitely scalable for you. So once you have, you know, capped out that guy that's making 60 or 80, there's more where that came from. You've got an impressive win-win arrangement that can then afford to pay good people to do good work that attracts good employees to you. That's a great position to be in. We'll continue again with Velodia. The other thing I want to say is that just because a problem needs solving doesn't mean you must be the only person who solves it. You know, if you find a way to connect two people who have two opposing problems and somehow you get to benefit from it, I mean, that's how joint ventures are set up. That's how partnerships are set up. That's how referral agreements are done. That's another way to think bigger and grow your business without any additional risk, et cetera, is just recognizing that maybe what somebody else has and someone else that you know has is somehow complementary to each other. To me, that is thinking bigger, right? And I found that some of the most interesting or some of the fastest deals um, where the, the, the money flew the fastest to us was done when we've done something like that. You know, uh, I remember we tied up a property and it had a lot of issues. Our team was experienced enough to be able to dissect those issues, present them in a very understandable format. But I also knew that it had a very specific buyer for that property. Now, we didn't buy it yet, but I knew there was another buyer that would pay a lot more than me because what it, the value to me was very different than the value to that other buyer because of the type of use that this particular property would have. In particular, the kind of work that we could do on that property and the only way we could sell it to a different person is if we unlocked its true value, if we could demonstrate on how it needs to be used to somebody else, meaning the seller couldn't do it, a potential buyer wasn't typically sophisticated enough to see it, but we did it and we have it. And so that was the kind of the main outcome here is that uh, we were able to tie it up for 50000 uh, put in a, a lot of our own internal effort. But if you think about it, it, was, it didn't cost us anything but our own time, meaning I put in the team together that was able to unlock some of this uh, potential value and then engage a broker to, uh, with a very specific instruction saying, look, here's who we need to find. You go find that person. And uh, we're able to flip it for about $600,000 lift and without closing. Meaning, if you think about the return on the money invested, we put in $50,000 that was locked down for about half a year. We had to do some in-house work. Um, there was, of course, hours, et cetera. You can attach some value to it. But regardless of what that is, it was time that was spent anyways. And so, um, I mean, that's the kind of thinking bigger profits that you, um, you you get access to if you get creative and if you uh, start 
you know, I, I keep returning back to that idea, you know, get your inner, reawaken your inner child. And those are my thoughts. Thanks for having me, Kyle. It's always a lot of fun to be able to share my thoughts uh, with your audience and with you. So um, thanks very much. So did you catch that, right? His last little bit there, he talks about a deal that he put through. And this was a deal that not a lot of other people have seen from their various positions. Of course, there were numerous other people that would have had the money for that type of deal. There's numerous other people who have done development work, but there was only one Velodio who had the vision for what this was and became the expert on that, was able to put that deal together and turn that into what it had the potential to be. And that's kind of the same way with that, that partnership style discussion that I'm talking about going and making that deal with a multi-billion dollar company and being able to say to them, like, this is what we're going to repurpose this technology for. And here's how this is all going to work. And instead of them being dismissive, they were incredibly inspired. They were on the edge of their seats. They all had grins on their faces as I discussed this stuff with them. And why was that? They're not thinking outside the box. They don't have that inner child, as Velodia says. They have already had the world beat the fire out of them. And if you're that person that's in motion, and you're that person who doesn't have the fire beaten out of them, people can recognize that. So continue being that person and don't be someone who gives up on that. There was a cheesy quote I saw on the wall somewhere. I was somewhere, I don't remember where, but it was on the wall and it's a fictitious character. And it says, the moment you doubt whether you can fly, you cease forever to be able to do it. And it was evidently a quote from Peter Pan. So it's J.M. Barry, the creator of that. And I thought that that was pretty fitting for this discussion, right? I call it beating the fire out of you and you don't have it anymore and they call it flying, right? The moment you doubt whether you can fly, you cease to be able to do it forever. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed that, that bigger thinking discussion. I think it's a pretty epic show being 55 minutes long and loaded with so many examples. I appreciate you guys listening, particularly this long into the show. Thank you for supporting the show and being a part of our movement up the charts connect with the show on telegram join the progress thread on the fast lane forum.com god bless you guys entrepreneurs like you build the future have a fantastic rest of your day and stay tuned for our next episode until next time keep building amazing things
boys, break's over. Time now for High Noon. So far, so good. With Nate Lucas. I'm your huckleberry. And Bob Ramsey. Man ought to do what he thinks is best. On 590 The Fan and 590TheFan.com. Ladies and gentlemen, what is going on? Happy Thursday to you. What a gorgeous fall day here in St. Louis, Missouri. 63 degrees, high noon, with you for the next two hours. Big show, as they say. What's up, Rammer? What's up, Cole? Hey, guys. How's everybody? Wonderful. Doing well? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) doing great. (laughs) Why is everybody, good. like, not believing each other? <laughs> I, I don't know. know. I, I'm, I'm in a particularly good mood. I don't know why. Well, I, uh, we we had a restaurant cancel on us yesterday, so I thought we were going to have food, and we didn't. Well, I'm but, a little bitter about that. I wonder. But I'm not bitter at you guys. I'm, I'm bitter at Frank. Yeah. Frank let us down today. He did. He is our meal planner for Thursday. You know, and- because Joe Fresta busts his butt and really works hard, and then Frank just kind of right through his fingertips. I know. I always bring a lunch just in case, just in case something goes wrong, so I'm glad that I brought one today. <laughs> we, but uh, we, had a, we had a solid phone interview. What's in the brown paper bag? Oh, it's a peanut butter sandwich. It's a triple-decker peanut butter sandwich, so it's just three pieces of bread, three pieces of bread peanut butter on both layers in between. Mm. So that's my one and a half. Okay. I'm a what kind of bread? Just white, white bread. Yeah. So basic. Yeah, I know. God, like Wonder Bread. Uh, no, the Italiano or whatever, like the red, oh. green, and white. Oh, yeah. ah. fancy lad over uh, here. L- slightly. <laughs> Got to upgrade somewhere. You really yeah. do. We're gonna chat with Tyler Kepner coming up. Um, he was on with Bernie yesterday, I know, talking to MLB postseason, but he's got a new book out called The Grandest Stage, A History of the World Series, writes for the New York Times. We'll talk uh, some baseball with Tyler coming up at 1225. At 1 o'clock, Mark Grody handles uh, the sideline for the Chicago Bears should be just a thrilling Thursday night football game tonight. I know everyone is just anticipating a blowout in terms of high scoring, octane offense, great quarterback play. Won't happen for me, sorry. Not sure. Over under thirty eight. I think it might be a secretly good game because could both be. of these teams are bad to where they're on each other's level to where it's good competition. I see where you're going there. The play is that both teams suck so bad that you might get a decent game out of it, which yeah. could be the case. Yes. Now the problem is quarterback play. Oh. That might be where this all goes wrong. You know, the Chicago Bears, for as iconic of a franchise that they have had. Their quarterback play over their entire history has been largely mediocre. I mean, Rex Grossman brought them to a Super Bowl, for goodness sakes. Yeah. Rex Grossman. I'm trying to think of who Even they're... McMahon back in the 80s was not a great passer. 
but he was a leader and a winner and a great but, personality. But but he wasn't he you know he wasn't that prototypical big arm superstar. Guy. Right. They've always. But been... I mean he he made it work. He was an unbelievable leader. Was he one of those BYU guys back in the day who? Uh, I, I, I what think... are you saying about BYU? Is that back in the Is day? Is this a they, shot at BYU, Brigham no, Young University? They all used to throw. Steve Young went there. Ty Detmer. They they were throwing the ball all around the yard before everybody else was, and not everyone's caught up to them. But they were like innovative, to where all the almost like, oh my gosh, all these quarterbacks. Look at all these yards. And then they go to the NFL, and it'd be like, eh, uh, you know, maybe they're not that good. So, yeah. whoever, Just, whoever the coach was. You're not saying that about Steve Young. Well, it took him a while <laughs> to get there. But Ty Detmer and I guess. Well, only because he went to the other league and he was great there. Steve Young's one of the all-time greats. Yeah, it took him he like six years good. in the NFL, though. Yeah, he was ben- benched by the Buccaneers, then sat behind Joe Montana, and then got his well, time. Well, sitting behind Joe Montana is uh, is not a, a, a negative comment. Fine. A- uh, until Brady came along, he was the best ever. So you're sitting behind Joe Montana, okay? It's kind of like us. We sit now. Could you? We sit ahead. behind Bernie Miklas, you know? Right. Yeah. Sort of like he's the know, best. So you know, yeah. we're his opening act. We're the appetizer right. for Bernie. But yeah. I, so, I'm nitpicking at you. I know what you're saying. That's that's. I just a big Steve Young fan. I thought he was great. Well, it helps when you get to throw to Jerry Rice. That certainly or does it help changes. Jerry Rice when he has two great quarterbacks? That certainly. No, is. I got to see Jerry play in college and just a phenomenal player, unbelievable. The Delta Devils. He was that 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 team was was ridiculous, I, and I never saw a guy who could get open so fast. It was almost like magic. He was here, you blink, and then then he's twenty yards away. It was just, how does he do that? It's and amazing. The 49ers, of course, uh, drafted Terrell Owens and had Owens and Rice. I mean, Rice was at the tail end of his yeah, career, but still. Tennessee Chattanooga. For yeah. my money, Terrell Owens is still one of the greatest wide receivers. I know he was a hothead and he was a total, you know, mess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was Marvelously a talented. Oh, what a talent. Oh, my gosh. But he had the, he had the, uh, pre-Madonna thing going for him. Zero percent body fat to this day. That dude is shredded. <laughs> remember, <He> really <laughs> remember when he was in his driveway uh, doing bench presses yeah. and Drew Rosenhaus was there? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, got, he got kicked out of practice so what he continued know. his workout in the middle of his driveway for everybody to see just so he could show everybody, hey, I'm working hard just so, just so you guys know. That was know. incredible, wasn't it? Too good. That's epic television right there. Uh, so we'll preview Thursday night football with Mark Grody coming up at 1. And then uh, 125, we always like to try to give you some winners for the week. Brandon Lang is our betting expert from brandonlang.com. And we'll get his uh, choices for some of the college games and the slate on Sunday. Uh, already one game today postponed by Major League Baseball. So just one game on the docket will be Seattle at Houston game two. Uh, the Yankees, the forecast just looked miserable all day. I've seen, did they change the time for the Houston game, or is it still afternoon? 
I didn't notice that. I oh, saw 2.37 p.m. Okay. Central. Yeah. Well, that just made my decision. That kind border, of... I was borderline, so I'll go to the SLU women's soccer game. Number 10 ranked St. Louis I was about University. to say, they're pretty good from what I recall. If being in the top 10 is pretty good, I would say is, that's fair. Is her name... Well, I know that now. I'm just kidding. Is it Shields? Because we yeah, had Katie her on the Shields. show. Katie Shields. Is fantastic. Several times, yeah. The, she's uh, great. Yeah, she's a pretty good interview and a, apparently a pretty good coach to go along with it. And the men's team was pretty good recently, right? They had, they had Didn't they have like four first-round draft picks? Yes. Oh, yeah, into the MLS. Yeah. Uh, I think they had five, actually. I think they had five first-round This uh, is a picks. soccer city. How about it? Could be. Thanks for joining us. Yes. Absolutely. Ben. Welcome welcome to the city of St. Louis. That's right. Just the dangerous out of 182. And a hey, new, uh, no, no. Oh, wait. Yeah. Did, did, did we, did there we, was a new study that uh, put out we, St. Louis we, was number one. We took over New Orleans again. You well, know what, it's though? It's a different I, poll. This, this incorporates everything, like driving record, all sorts of crazy stuff. St. Louis was one. Is it St. Louis proper St. Louis or the city. market? St. Louis City. Yeah. See, that's not really the city, though. The city is that's not the, the television market. That's the city. You live so, in St. Charles, and some people will balk at it. You're, it's St. Louis. Belleville, St. Louis. Fenton, St. Louis. Kirkwood, St. Louis. Isn't that all Where technically right St. Louis County? Uh, no. St. Charles is, has its own St. county. St. Charles is St. Charles. I'm part saying of Fenton, Fenton. Part of Fenton is Jefferson County. Oh. Well, look, I'm de- Belleville so we is have- obviously in Illinois. My point is that, it, you know, you can make numbers say whatever you want. Yeah. So is that really, so you're saying, I mean, to say this St. Louis city proper, yeah, it's, it's bad news. Yeah, every single poll can tweak one variable here yes, or there. That's right. And then they can still claim that this is the best representation of danger in cities. Now, some, like you said, some polls might have the entire metropolitan area. Some might just have the downtown. Regardless, St. Louis is probably going to be somewhere near the top. Yeah, but, no, yeah. I, I'm not saying yeah. that it ends up changing the bottom line. Exactly. I'm just saying... The, the, there, are, there are variables in there. Don't we know all polls are trash? Haven't we learned that over the last decade? I trust them all. I don't know polls what you're talking about. Polls are trash. <laughs> I was told by a friend who I worked with, and I, I've only, for full context, anyone who may not be familiar, I've only been here for four and a half months. I was told that if you're downtown and you get cut off in traffic, do not honk. Because you have no idea what kind of confrontation you might get yourself into. Who told you that? Uh, someone who worked at Dick's. Oh. But. Yeah, I don't think they go downtown that often. I doubt it. You they used to say that about Hon- They used to say that about Honolulu. Oh, is Honolulu bad no, with? I'm just saying used to be that way. I don't know what it's like now. I hear living in Hawaii is ridiculously expensive. Because you're on an island, so you have nowhere else to go, so they can jack up the prices however they want to. Probably. I guess you'll have to move there to find out. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, games yesterday on the docket. How about the Atlanta Braves get a great start from Kyle Wright? They needed that in a, in the, in a bad way. 
And I think uh, the Phillies were exposed to what many going into the Cardinals series kind of thought why St. Louis might have the upper hand in that series. Their defense kind of imploded. They uh, blew through their bullpen in game one. It kind of got exposed a little bit. And And the Braves offense, which nearly came back in game one, just kept clicking. And Wright was able to fight his way out of a couple of early jams, and that set the table. And Matt Olson, um, you think this guy's been craving to play on the big stage for a while after being relegated to, <laughs> you know, losing teams in Oakland? And here he is on the, on the biggest stage doing some terrific things. Now, I don't know what's going to happen with Ronald Acuna Jr. because that dude got – Smoke! Oh my gosh! How is he? How is that elbow still even in one piece? Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was. Both games were good, but I thought that was a really good baseball game. And it was three to nothing. They all came in one inning. No home runs. It was. Uh, but they got some guys on base and delivered with r- runners in scoring position. And if you start looking at all these games, and we know that's that's a key stat, whether it's. April, July, or October, mm-hmm. it's a key stat. They took advantage of the one thing, but that's it. That's the only inning that, in which they could score. I thought it was a good baseball game. Really good baseball game. And and the, you're right, though. The Phillies make a mistake. Hoskins gets one over at first base, can't make the play, and all of a sudden mm-hmm. you give a good offensive team extra outs, and what do they do with it? They turn it into a crushing inning, and then your starter – Kyle Wright gives you everything that you were looking for um, and and pitches pretty well. And, you know, the Phillies in game one, look at what they did right out of the gates. They scored three two-out runs, bang, mm-hmm. bang, bang, just like that, and took a 3 nothing lead in. And that demoralized Atlanta, at least until it was too late before they put together a late rally. So that game, that series heads back to Philadelphia – uh, with with the Braves now maybe being able to recalibrate things, they had a significant time off there and and uh, look out, Atlanta is darn good and that's not breaking news to anyone listening. Atlanta is just really good. The Phillies and their fans will be happy with the split. You know, you say always say that, but in a close game like it was yesterday. And they didn't let it slip through their fingers. They didn't score. It was almost like, uh, almost like the Cardinals uh, Saturday. Forget how many runs they scored. You didn't score any, so it didn't matter. But that was a close game, and I think they're competing right there with, with Atlanta. Nightcap. I thought it was a terrific game, too. Really good baseball game. I had to turn game. it off because I, I was just exhausted. I went to bed. It was 3-3. But how about the San Diego Padres' 5-3 victory? And, you know, Bob Melvin uh, had some tough decisions in that game. And I watched until he took Darvish out in the sixth inning after he he brought him back out there. And he had a decent pitch count. I mean, he finished with 99 pitches, 63 strikes. But Darvish, you know, it was sort of in that same decision as what we've seen managers make before where, well, do I want to let my guy go back out a third time through the lineup 
and and Melvin did, and it didn't necessarily pay off, so he had to go out there and get him yeah. uh, to bring in uh, Suarez. But Suarez comes in and couldn't have been more lights out. I mean, two innings, only two hits, a strikeout of the eight batters that he faced and stranded Los Angeles. I think they had runners on the corners, maybe with nobody out in that sixth inning or some variation with a couple of guys on, and he gets out of it. Um, and then they're able to punch through with a couple of runs, and just like that, uh, San Diego goes back home with a split against the the daunted uh, Los Angeles Dodgers. You know, it's interesting. The, the Dodgers, three solo home runs, but with runners in scoring position, 0 for 8. We yeah. keep going back to that when you – you're able. To, you got 11 hits and four walks. You're all over the bases, but you could only score on the solo home runs. Um, uh, I, I thought that was really interesting that they were able to get guys in key moments when they needed them, and the double play late was was remarkable. I, it was uh, it was wild, and uh, that that's the play. One of the plays of post. I mean, you got the obviously the walk off in Houston, but for San Diego and L.A., that was that was unbelievable, and maybe changes the series because the Dodgers were ready to climb all over the Padres late, and they got that double play and got out of it. Play the uh, game winning hit here. This is Cronenworth and a base knock that uh, scored Profar or part of me uh, Profar's base hit. Uh, that made it 4-3 San Diego. The pitch. Swing and a chopper through the right side hole. That's a base hit. Around third is Cronenworth. He's going to score. Throw cut off. And the Padres lead this game 4-3 on an RBI single by Jerks and Profar. Profar earlier in the game, I don't know if you caught this at bat. He was up there against Clayton Kershaw. And Kershaw started him with a heater inside that – you know, he was behind on, but got a piece of. Then he got him out in front of something. And then he threw about a 50-foot breaking pitch that Profar came out of his shoes again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, for a major league hitter to look that bad on a pitch that didn't even make it to home plate, I thought is a telling sign of what Kershaw has left in the tank at this age. It was uh, – I just thought there were really big moments throughout that game. And every time a guy hit a bomb, same thing with the Padres, those solo homers. But Manny Machado, it looks like he's trying to take over. Terrific plays at third. Uh, it was it was good stuff, man. Uh, Padres manager Bob Melvin, after the game, talked about his team's compete level. I mean, you know, it was a back and forth game. It was, you know, there was a lot of drama. You know, we take a lead. All of a sudden, they come right back. Some seemed like it went back and forth the entire game. And then, you know, certainly now you get two out, nobody on in the ninth. And Freeman hits O2 pitch that's up around his chin that I don't even know how he gets to. And now all of a sudden, you know, you're you're one pitch away from from you know being in trouble again. So uh, it's probably as as back and forth a game as you're going to see. A lot of drama to it. Fun win. You know, Bob Melvin, let's give this man some credit. Uh, All he's done is pretty much win wherever he's gone as well, including in Oakland with a very low uh, payroll. Mm -hmm. And he's old school, 
and I keep looking up and down at the the remaining teams and the managers in the positions that they are, whether it's Snitker, whether it's uh, Melvin, whether it's Dusty Baker. I mean, there are a lot of guys who are going up against Dave Roberts, who I believe uh, at this time right now, I think he's the longest tenured manager in the big leagues right now. Seven years, eight? What is it? What's the number? I can't remember. I don't know, but that that goes to show you how much change we've seen over the last handful of years with one team, that is. Um, And and you're just looking at uh, guys who have been around in the game for a long time that still know how to manage. And yesterday we talked a lot about analytics and and how they're sort of taken over in the realm of sports. But I think yesterday in particular, you know, it didn't work out for Melvin to put Darvish back out there again, but he still. But he was ready to make a move. He was. He was ready, and he went to Suarez, and Suarez got the job done. And he didn't sit there and let it implode. He decided, all right, Darvish is cruising along here. I like his stuff. He still looks sharp. I'm going to trust him to go back out there in the sixth, and then went and got him when the time was right, and and he was bailed out by a bullpen, but. There was somebody, did I, I don't know if it was on this show or earlier or whatever I said this, but it bears worth repeating. There was a relief pitcher on MLB Network who made the point that when you bring in more relievers, every time that that bullpen gate swings open and you bring in a new arm, you risk the potential of bringing in a guy who doesn't have it on that particular day. He could be the best of the best, but there's a chance he might not have it. No offense to you. I've been saying that for years and years. It's just odds. The more pitchers you bring in, the more likely somebody is going to spit the bit. It's just it's just the odds of it. And isn't it weird that all of a sudden that now that that's some radical idea that you want your starter to go as long as he can in a game to try to give you the best chance to win? And if if you do something like bring Darvish out after he settles into a game, then all of a sudden you have to now defend why you went against right. the rationale of taking a starter out. It, it's We use the phrase too often, but it's all too common of this being a clown world. Things are kind of upside right, down. Right. But the idea that you would just take out a starter – when he's cruising right along, it's just such an upside-down version of a, of a game that I think we've all sort of studied since we became fans as kids. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, in that game, I think if Kershaw had been more effective, or probably the better way to say it, had the Padres not solved Kershaw a little bit early. I mean, they still struck out six times in five innings, but they were able to put some things together, or should I say Manny Machado did. And had the the Padres been off the scoreboard, he might have had to make a move earlier. But Darvish was kind of battling in there. He gave him a gutsy performance, in my view. Mm-hmm. He didn't have his great stuff, um, gave up some bombs, got in a jam in the fifth, but up until that point, it was kind of that kind of blue collar I'm going to I'm going to try and do my best to keep us in the game 
And that was the effort he got from him, I thought. There were also a couple of, I mean, there were errors on uh, Trey Turner had an error in that game, but there were some remarkable plays Mm -hmm. made in that game. Uh, Center fielder for um, San Diego, Grisham, went back on a ball and made a terrific catch on a knuckler uh, that took him back a long way. Uh, So a lot to like. I think that's... That's a really fun series. The Padres and Dodgers are obviously rivals, National League West, but they're they're pretty evenly matched, and we'll see how it plays yeah. out now that the series shifts to uh, San Diego for a Game Three. And don't you? Know, I assume I know everybody's pretty laid back and cool on the West Coast, but you would assume uh, the Padres fans will be going crazy. It should be a great atmosphere. And if you're in a great ballpark, I mean, San Diego, I'll have to check and see if they've named a game three starter yet, but, uh, I guess they got several decisions. It could could be, who was their game one on last Friday? Well, it was Clevenger and he was not, he was not good. So, so you say, are we eliminating him? Is Snell available? I'm not sure. We'll have to see. Tim Anderson named the uh, starter for the Dodgers in Game 3. Why don't we take our first time out of the show? Tyler Kepner from the New York Times will join us next and tell us about his new book, The Grandest Stage, A History of the World Series on 590 The Fan. Thank you for stopping by Masks Off, uncovering the latest topics that you need to know about from business, human trafficking, teen-related issues, mental health and wellness, and everything in between. Stay tuned for your host, Tuskia Thomas, keeping it real, honest, and relatable. Welcome to Masks Off, where we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly. Hello, hello, hello. I am your host, Tuskia. Welcome to Masks Off. We are here with Ms. Nikki, and we're going to talk about her experience as a teen mom. Ms. Nikki, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Okay. So I'm Nikki, and um, I'm a 43-year-old mother of two sets of twins, um, first set, which started my teen pregnancy. They're um, Deontay and Devontae, and my second set, which is Derek and Danae, they have been the pretty much the foundation of my life in this journey and just how I evolve each and every day. I base it off of what I want them to be able to see me um, have victory over and even my failures. So that's where I am. That's who I am. Wow. Okay. Wow. Two sets of twins. I thought it was hard with Three kids, but two sets of twins. I know you probably wanted to pull your hair out plenty of days. Oh, my goodness. Yes, I actually did. Um, 
I, I can to be totally transparent because I've done the the work to be able to tell my story and just talk about it and and be comfortable with it. Oh my God, as a teen pregnancy, I was like, what am I getting ready to do? Right. How am I getting ready to do this? You know, it's not one child. It's I have twins. I'm 17. What am I getting ready to do? Yeah. And real life kicked in for me in like two quarters, mm-hmm. six months. Real life just, I had to go from a young girl that was baffled. I'm getting ready to have some type of freedom right. to saying, hey, no, you're going to have freedom, but it's going to, you're going to have to be very strategic in how you move. Right. And that was the beginning of wisdom. That was the beginning of it for me. And I, um, I'll say the very first moment that it was very humbling for me and I had to embrace how society looked at young, young pregnancies was me walking across the stage. I was, oh my God, almost 200 pounds because I had a set of twins. Mm-hmm. I was not really, really popular in school, but people knew me. Right. Um, and they knew like, oh my God, Nikki is pregnant with twins. And so many of them was proud of me because I was still graduating. But for me, I was like, I'm not going to be able to pursue my dreams. Wow. So behind the scenes for myself, it was more so, um, okay, if I can't pursue my, my dreams, I have to make sure I position myself um, mentally, physically, spiritually, financially, the best I could at my age to put all my admirations and dreams and things of that nature into my kids. Right. And that was that was the tunnel vision I've had up until maybe four years ago, where I just start I just started to reintroduce myself to me. Right. Yeah, I you know. know right. <laughs> Way too well. <laughs> <laughs> so being um a teen mom myself, I had my first daughter at 15 in high school. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about um the fears. And for me, it was, I guess, because my family was very religious, I was taught to be embarrassed of being a teen mom. So let's talk about some of those hurdles that still to this day, people say, oh, yeah, it's more common now. But we still have this idea or um, certain judgments against teen moms. So let's talk about how you felt um, your experiences dealing with that. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm going to say, I'm sorry you experienced the religious point of being so, um, I don't know, condemned because I received that same treatment. My family was very, um, very religious, borderline cultish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, when I got pregnant, it wasn't that they just scrutinized me in front of me it was the the undertone mm-hmm. of when I walked into the room right. that actually molded the insecure part of me right 
I know that now, but then I didn't know. I just thought something was wrong. Like, oh my God, I just, God is not going to forgive me. Oh, I'm trapped. Oh my God, I'm <laughs> dirty. I'm this, you know. Right. And it took me almost two decades to unprogram myself to know that everything that has happened with my teenage pregnancy, on a spiritual note, it had to happen so I can be where I am right now. Right. So I can be able to um, voice my opinion and not have a biased judgment right. of someone that made a similar decision, you know, as a teen pregnancy or someone that's done something worse or, or, or better or worse. Right. But for me, growing up, it made me feel like... Um, like I would never be victorious, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Like I am shunned upon. The, the, mm -hmm. um, I'm unclean, and when I walk into a room, no matter how talented I I am, no matter what I offer on a positive note, they're going to somehow sense on my forehead that this is a teenage <laughs> pregnancy. And she does not make good decisions. Right. And that that spirit kind of traveled with me for a, a long time until I had to fight back as a teenager. And, um, and how I fought back, truthfully, for me, was isolation. Mm. I isolated myself from people that supported what I was feeling in the inside that I didn't have the nerve to talk about. And then I increased my um how i interacted with with other people that inspired me i i if that makes sense right you know those who didn't those who, who fed that insecurity or that darkness i totally um i didn't disrespect them or or anything of that nature i just kind of made it be known like oh you know i'm gonna i'm gonna go over here or i'll shy away from conversations or never go to events right um and like I said, I strategically spoke to certain people about certain things. Um, I even went into eating certain foods, fasting. It went so deep for me because I really wanted to look in the mirror and not see what I was programmed to be um, as a teenage pregnancy. Right. You know? Oh. Yeah. Um, let's talk about, okay, so when did you find that your voice to get to that point, that breaking point when you realized that it was the judgment of people and not the judgment of God? Like, what was your breaking point to find that voice within you to say, it's okay that, I don't want to say you messed up because I didn't make it seem like your child was a mistake. Your kids are a mistake and they're not. But what what was your breaking point and how like how did you get through that? Okay. My breaking point, it was it was a tangible breaking point. I I um I went and got my first apartment. I think I was I was 18. I went and got my apartment. And it was so tough. You know, I was working at a bank. I was making decent money for that time at as a seven as an 18, 19 year old young lady. 
but I had two kids. It was they were eating up. Daycare was eating up everything I had, mm-hmm. and I made a decision to apply for Section Eight. Mm-hmm. I applied for Section Eight. I received Section Eight a year later. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. A year later, I received Section Eight. I'm on Section Eight and. Like the second month I was on it, they kept prying. What hours? How many hours did you work? Um, who's living in the household? What's what's this? What's that? And I'm like, man, like it reminded me of the scrutiny that I received growing mm. up in my household. Right. So I was like, you know what? That was my breaking point. I said, I am not, I will not, I'm getting ready to figure out how not to rely on any entity that gives that same forceful, um, I call it slavery type of mentality. I I refuse. So what I did is I totally got off section eight and I worked my butt off. I'm talking about at the bank, grandma's house, I worked it. I didn't sleep. I just worked. Me and my mate we worked, and I was able to successfully buy my first home at twenty years old. Wow! Because I was, I, I was just like, no, I'm not doing this. I'm not gonna do this. Right. That was my breaking point for me on a tangible level, on a spiritual level. The breaking point for me was, uh. To be totally honest, me helping my one of my oldest sons with homework. Mm. I can remember being so bothered, like, boy, why aren't you reading this? <laughs> I was so frustrated with him. Oh my God, I was so frustrated with him. And I still to this day remind him of, do you remember how little I made you feel? Wow. And he's like, yeah, Ma, I remember that. Mm. And I also remember the all the ways that you went back and you corrected that wrong. That was an eye-opener for me when I said, oh my God, I am duplicating my previous environment onto my kids. Mm -hmm. And it it happened in such a way that I didn't even know I was doing it until I looked at him and I seen the little me And him, and I said, oh my gosh, that's it. That that ignited something else in me when it came to um, their education and being in tune with their world, not just my world. Right. And that's, that right there, I would say is the foundation of why me and my children, and I'm so grateful, thank God, we have a, a great relationship because... Um, I believe they they have watched me fail. They have watched me pick up pieces to the puzzle. They have watched me um, be human. Right. They've watched me be human, and I invite them in, and I tell them all the time, you know, God really blessed me with some lovely children, and in the same sense, you guys are my children, but when I need uh, a dad, you're my, you're my dad. Right, my mom, you're my sisters, you know, you and it really 
in my household, that really works. It really works out. Right. Wow. It really works out. So it's been, it was tough though, but and it's still, <laughs> you know, you have your days or whatever the case may be. But being a teen pregnancy, I, I wouldn't have ever imagined me being the woman that I am now and understanding as much as I do still quote unquote being a little on the younger side right you know because you're still young (laughs) (laughs) okay so um I always teach my kids that anything in life is 90% mental and then everything else comes together if you're not 90% mentally prepared it's going to either break you or make you how did you use, or how was, on a mental level, how did you stay strong? Because I noticed a lot of times, the kids these days, especially, um, we're dealing with a lot of suicide issues. And I know that mm-hmm. all of it is not related mm-hmm. to being a teen mom, but being a teen mom, it weighs down on you mentally. It weighs down. <laughs> you know, it not even dealing with the, the judgment, but you know, you're dealing with the judgment, you're dealing with the financial concerns, you're dealing with a baby, yes. dealing with trying to, you know, work or go to school. So mentally, let's talk about some of the mentally mental challenges you you had to go through and then how did you overcome those? I'm gonna say this. Uh my foundation um in my mom's home came with an abundance of having to practice uh, uh mental certainty of yourself i'll say that so i already had some knowledge mm-hmm. in regards to me being um a, a parent to my children i assisted my 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 mom was helping with my youngest brother and then i assisted my oldest brother with the help of his kids so i was i always had it in me that mental portion um but of course when you are out there as a teen by yourself with those kids i i can honestly say one of the mental um challenges that I had was wow I have so much energy and I have so much potential to do A, B, C, D, E, F, and G however my financial status won't allow me to do so because I'm not out socializing because I can't afford to be out socializing and if I was to go out and be socializing I can't keep up with the Jones so I started writing down all the things that was prohibiting me from being the great part that I thought I was supposed to be. Right. And I made my mind up. That's not for me. I just can't. It's just not adding up. And I'm tired of feeling sad about it. So I'm going to, I'm going to build my own bridge over here. Right. And that's what I did. And I, and ironically, I built it off of the positive Adams Mm. in which I received from my religious background, mm. if that makes sense. Right. I built it off of that. I went back to what I felt was so rare and and sometimes obstructive when it came to how, you know, some older people, um, traditions would be like how God would punish you and things of that nature. I took that and I ran with it. 
in regards to a, a inner journey. Right. So I said, okay, well, I can't have what everybody can see, the fine cars and the big house and this and that and that. So how can I be the best me? Well, you got some trauma you got going on. Mm-hmm. Go and work on your inner being. Because when you walk in a room, you want people to actually feel a sense of, um, I want me her. I, 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 wanna, I want that strength that she carries. I, I want to see what is that all about. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've been doing. I've been working on my inner being. And anybody that's in close proximity, they challenge me. I challenge them. And we work to become better people. Um, mentally first because I I just believe if your psyche is not right, Right. nothing. (laughs) Nothing. Because I've had my moments where depression have kicked my behind Mm. where I didn't even know I was in depression until months later and I'm like, I said what? I did what? Oh my God. But it took the support of the family that knew that my 90% 90% of the time, I'm not that way. For mm-hmm. them to say, no, she's going through something. So they assist me in areas in which I needed to be assisted, which I, the, just the whole family support or friend support that you have, I think that right there helps out on the, on the mental note. Um, but to sum it up or on the mental capacity, I feel like I had a lot of practice um, in my mom's home and it it that right there she equipped me her in in the, her house equipped me for some of my harder days that was to come on the mental no i was equipped in that area okay yeah now let's talk about you just talked about the support system because a lot of people really don't understand not even just being a team mom just being a person in in general um, your support system can either make you or break you. So let's talk about your support system. Like what was the most important thing that got you through and what is something or some things that you went through that you wished um, could have been better or could help someone in, you know, that's going through this situation now to be better? Because I know one of the things, my mom died two weeks before my daughter was born. But I knew one of the things when it first came out, when she found out is what happened, you know, like it wasn't, a, she didn't make me feel ashamed of myself, but it was like the, the blame game. Like, you know, is it my fault? Yeah. You know, so you, you that the tug of war within herself. So, and of course, anybody have a child to come in at, at an early age um, that says they're pregnant your reaction right. first of all is shock we get that yeah. but what how can we help people to move past that shock and still be that support system um how can we get people to move past that shock well not for you like in your experience what do you, how do you feel it was beneficial or even hindered you i feel like my mom's approach was a really good approach for me. My mom, she 
she didn't, um, my mom per se, she did not just crucify me. She okay. didn't. She did look me in my eye and she said, okay, you've done something that is going to change your status quo. Right. You're, you're not a, a young lady no more. You're, you're, you're getting ready to be a woman whether you want to or not. Right. So time come for income taxes. You're going to file your taxes. Me and your dad going to figure out to get you an apartment. You're going to furnish your apartment with your income tax money. And voila, you're going to have to do what you have to do. Okay. At the time, I felt abandoned. Mm. I felt like, oh, my God, my mom is abandoning me because I'm still just a kid. Right. But not until like maybe several years later did I realize what I thought was abandonment was her actually set me up to be resilient and stronger and be able to uh, deal with adversity on higher levels than a normal person. That's one thing I will say about teenage pregnancies, the ones that really put their their heart into it, we're, we're, we're strong, we're very resilient. We don't fall eat or fold easy, we just right. don't. And um, that's something I will say, um, that I absolutely feel was the greatest support I could have received. I didn't think so. Like I said, think I was young, naive. Right. But that was one of the greatest things that she did to support me in that during that time of that teenage pregnancy. But one thing that I, I wish I did receive more of, I do wish I received more of... Um, affirmations mm. yeah hey although you're a teenage pregnancy you conduct yourself as a respectful young lady right hey although you're a teenage pregnancy you don't actually call and ask anybody for anything right. you know those things i i would say water water properly fertilized my weed Mm -hmm. It's basically what I would use, what I would say to people. Properly fertilize my weeds, because that in the, at that phase of my life, it was a weed. Yeah, when I was young, yeah, it was a weed. However, what what you do with it is is where the power come in at, right? In the essence, to me, and I felt like maybe with with those who did support me, just the affirmations. I think the affirmations would have taking me even uh, further when it came to accomplishing goals and, and things of that nature, because you got to think about it. I'm, I'm still, I'm still a kid mm -hmm. and I'm only believing most kids are only believing in what is told to them or what they can tangibly see. Right. All I seen was poverty, feeling hopeless sometimes like, oh my God, I got these kids. I don't know how I'm getting ready to feed them. Like, what am I finna do? Right. On top of having to dig so deep on a spiritual note, because as we both know, as teen pregnancies, our mind, we're still young. Our minds are trying to figure out how we're going to make this money. It can get really tricky. You can. <laughs> it can get really tricky, you know, to sum it up. 
and to still be able to have some sense of integrity behind you, knowing the options you could have chose mm -hmm. to make way, that right there to me, that separates um, me, the, the broken me, from right. the healed me. Mm. And it's how I look at it. I have two more questions, I promise you. Oh, so, no, you're fine. <laughs> so let's talk about the spirituality of it. Mm -hmm. what, what, when did you come to reality? And let's talk about when, when you came to reality that God forgave you the moment you went through that process, the moment you got pregnant, God forgave you. But a lot of times we don't get to that point until time later that he forgave me at that point. He had, you know, he had me under his grace. So mm -hmm. when did you get to that point and how was that experience for you? Because a lot of kids need to understand that in anything they do, God still loves them. As, at the end of the day, regardless of what you did in the past, what you're doing right now, you know, God is still going to love you. He doesn't hate you. I, religion teaches us that God is disappointed at us. Religious teaches us that God hates us. So let's talk yeah. about that point when the reality came that God still loves me. In the isolation, I told you I said it for myself. Um, I was confused because I'm like, how is it that I am this unclean young lady because I, you know, had sex out of wedlock and got pregnant with the kids. How am I so unclean and, and feel through human beings' eyes that I'm beneath and not above, but when it comes to me walking throughout my daily life, I actually don't feel bad. I feel at peace. What is, what is the middle ground? Right. So during that isolation, I realized to be quiet and watch people and how they conduct themselves and ask plenty of questions. So mm -hmm. I started asking all my elders, how was life when y'all grew up? What was this and what was that? And it, I came to a conclusion that a lot of them, they experienced the same thing I did. They mm -hmm. did the same thing I did. And then at that point, I had to say, are they hypocritical or do they have a certain level of ignorance based off of religion, right. not spirituality, but right. religion? And that's when I said, oh, my goodness, they're only doing what they were taught. Mm -hmm. And most people knock the next person down to make sure that they sound like they did good or they feel good. Right. And that's when I start realizing, oh my gosh, this self-righteous thing, it goes way deeper than what the eyes can see. Right. So I said in my isolation, I am going to ask all these questions. I'm going to figure out why do I still feel okay about being a parent? Because I'm doing the best that I can and my kids love me. I love them. I don't feel like God is just whipping on me like how they whipping on me. I don't feel right. that. So, right. so I said quietly, I asked questions and I figured out that 
they went through the same thing that I went through and I didn't pass judgment on them. And that inspired me to look deeper in God's words in regards to what he say I will go through or we all will go through on earth mm -hmm. for me to start being able to discern different spirits, where they are, what they doing. Are they there to uh, give some type of growth? you know, to me or, uh, or attack me. And if they are attacking me, is it really they're attacking me because they feel like they have to attack me or is it something about me they don't quite understand? Right. So that, that opened up a door for me to, to truthfully be pure mm. at heart towards people behind their backs in front of them. I'm, I'm pure. Right. When it comes, you know, to it. So for me, that's what that was. That's when spirituality really started kicking in. Because I was I was challenging, like, what? I feel okay. You know, I'm struggling and everything. But I feel like God's getting ready to send me to hell because right. I had kids. Right. You know, exactly. So I would say, if, if I could, if I had a young lady sitting in front of me, I'd tell her, this is the time. First of all, God don't make no mistakes. Having those kids at that early age, yes, it was a decision that I had made, but having the kids at those certain age, it prepared me for something so much bigger and wealthier than what the actual eye can see. Right. Like in my insides, I I feel a sense, a, a connection. It's a connection that I have that it's like no value over it. Right, and that's what I would tell a young lady. Like it's going to be, like it's going to be hard, but you have to maintain a certain, um, a certain, I don't know, understanding about yourself that you need room and you deserve room to, to grow, right. to fail to understand some things, to mm -hmm. not understand, like you really need to understand that you're a person inside of this journey. Right. Like you're, you're a person. I like literally visualize your, yourself being outside of what you actually physically see sometimes. Right. So you can really dictate to yourself and be your own friend because ultimately you, it's just you. Right. You know, be your own friend. Right. So that's what I would say. And the last question. Mm -hmm. if, in this opportunity, what would you say to your younger self? Ooh, through a life and all your experiences, what would you sit back and tell your younger self? My younger self? What would I tell my younger self? I believe I would tell my younger self that every obstacle that you have is actually a door in every obstacle. And that door, you can hold on to that doorknob and open that door up based off of your perception right. of whatever it may be. And the perception you make the perception just because it seems like it's a negative or derogatory thing going on in your life. Like I, I will challenge myself to change my perspective 
But what that is, that it's really the opposite. Like, this is not something negative. Right. This is actually preparation for the next level of which I'm going to be going. Right. I, I would just keep reminding myself that the world tells you, I, I just kind of feel like the world sometimes tell you what's negative is positive and what's positive is negative. Right. Like, you, for example, you have the teenage pregnancies. Right. Oh, you know, it's they still shunned upon, but it's a little bit more open nowadays. Right. But they'll tell you that all oh, those young ladies, statistic wise, they're, you know, they're gonna live in poverty. They're not gonna be this, they're gonna be that. But they're not telling you that those young ladies that were teenage or are or were teenage pregnancies, those are some of the more commendable community members yeah. they're the ones that the backs of the communities they they know how to serve right you know so that's that's what i would tell my younger self change your perspective of this door being a door of opportunity opposed to it being a door that's being closed for you mm. just you have the power to to change that thought process it's no one else it's you right so that's what i would say well, thank you, Ms. Nikki, for sharing yes, your story with us today. I absolutely love it. And we definitely will have to have you back on the show. I appreciate you having me. I really do. And thank you to all our viewers for listening to her story today. We hope you join us for our next episode. Oh,